People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and happy Monday, everyone. You're with the Greenwash team. I am Jaspreet Bopperai here with my long-suffering co-host, Don Nicholson. Morning, Don. Morning, Jaspreet and listeners. You're looking really fresh from this side of the uh, microphone, Jaspreet. Um you know, how Long is it? You must have had a week off. Must must have had a week off somehow. Lady of pleasure. That's me, Don. Mm. Lady of pleasure. Good, good work if you can do it. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, no rest for the wicked, very honestly. Mm. And uh, it seems no rest for the crazy machine as well that keeps pushing all the stuff at us that we all keep talking about. But uh, before we go on into the further into the show, I must mention about the enormous amount of feedback that we got after the Barry Brill interview Don and I had on last week. It seemed that resonated with a whole lot of New Zealanders who thought that pledging voluntarily $30 billion was a scam. Yeah, well, it's, it's not hard to understand that, is it? But um, yeah, great the feedback we got. And um, we're so grateful to Barry for his tenacity. He's He's a battler for common sense and realism and uh we need more people like him in new zealand and you know while we were lucky enough to have him on our show uh scored the coup um rodney i'd had him on his show later in the week as well so uh see our listeners got a double dose absolutely do remember you can text us at 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio with your feedback but I think it is time now to launch into the climate crazy headlines of this week just gone. And I'll make a start on. This is from our favorite, The Guardian. Herd of puppets to trek 20,000 kilometers to highlight urgency of the climate crisis. There's this team behind this project that was called the Little Amal, A-M-A-L, puppet project, which raised plight about the refugee crisis in Europe. It's funny, isn't it? We've often talked about the fact that mass emigration to the West is another thing on the agenda. It's those same people now pushing the climate crisis, but uh, more on these puppets. So a herd of puppets will start the journey in West Africa next spring, 2025. 
The planned route includes Senegal, Morocco, Spain, France, UK, Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and finally Norway. <laughs> the core herd will contain 30 puppets representing the migrating animals of Serengeti, but they'll be joined with a massive migration of other animals, creating a herd that could swell to dozens. Goodness, who comes up with this sort of nonsense? Well, they've got a lot of time to, the people in behind all this, they've got too much time on their hand. Uh, perhaps I can think of the best puppets uh, to to be there. Uh, they're not animals, they're human animals. Uh, Gateras and uh, Figueras would be quite good. And and all the people in, that have gone before, um, they should be relics of the past and made into puppets. Yes, so Christina Figueras, Don is referring to the architect of the Paris Accord and Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Mm. Gosh, what wouldn't I pay to see them marching off into the great unknown forevermore? Yeah, no, uh, of course, there's, um, they had plenty of predecessors that uh, could easily fit uh, the fossilised um, sort of relics of the past I'm talking about. They need to be um, given their marching orders and perhaps we should just leave them in the Serengeti. <laughs> Yes, Don. I mean, they, they're costing us all. They are costing us all so, so much. The net zero um, system scam is falling to bits worldwide, and they're still pressing on, trying to hold on to their last vestiges of, of as as uh, Mark Pay said last week, the climate hoax. So, yep, yeah, the they, they're crazies. That's one of your crazies. What else have you got? Oh. My next one is again from The Guardian, and this is about Switzerland. Switzerland calls on the United Nations to explore the possibility of solar geoengineering on the 22nd of Feb. And Switzerland has initiated a global debate on whether the risks, benefits and uncertainties of dimming the sun should be studied by who else but a United Nations expert group and set up an advisory panel. We want to dim the sun down. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? At the same time that they want solar panels all around the world that <laughs> are powered by the sun. What a contradiction. How crazy are these people? Do they not see the stupidity of their argument? I mean, I either or, they can have it either side, you know, either way. Regardless, if both of those things are non-market and non-need, you know, not needed. It's just completely it's virtue signaling signaling on steroids, and uh, it just wears you thin, doesn't it? Completely. Um, but it, it, clearly, it winds me up. And what's amazing to me is how all of these countries, be it Switzerland, be it us, be it the US, Canada, we've all accepted the United Nations as a lord and master's you know, requesting them to set up a special advisory panel, requesting the World Health Organization for, you know, clues on what's the next pandemic going to do, wanting them to set up another international treaty. What is it about these unelected, unaccountable global NGOs that, you know, seems to float people's boat? I I, I can't answer for them, Jaspreet. Uh, they, they're, they're grifters of the highest order. They um, clearly have never been in the real world doing real stuff, but it gets worse. Uh, the climate crazy I came up with this week was in the Telegraph. Uh, the Navy could make climate change courses compulsory. Elect paper suggested that all sailors may be forced to attend online training on environmental issues. Um, you kidding me. Some people are just fighting back saying, in fact, most people with common sense would fight back and say, um, 
the British Defence Force needs to get a grip. We don't need eco-friendly soldiers. We need we don't need sensitivity training for sailors, and we don't need another Whitehall talking shop. We need to focus on defence and quickly. That was from the UK. I'd agree. Climate training. You know what? This makes me think about this whole last week was all about this real estate agent who was being harassed and harangued by her industry body to have, uh, you know, to compulsorily undergo the Treaty of Waitangi training. There's going to come a time when they're going to get all the real estate agents to do compulsory climate change training. training. Mark my words, that's going to happen. Well, and I dare say, yeah, look, you might say that facetiously, but um, yeah, let's hope it all gets tipped in the bin before then. But um, you know, the ESG, DEI stuff seems to be falling to bits around the world. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm reading from another um, page here, JP Morgan Chase, BlackRock drop out of the massive UN Climate Alliance and stunning move. Meta, Amazon, Google shared 3,000 do-good ESG staff as backlash over woke capitalism intensifies. An ESG asset manager exodus in, in the Wall Street Journal and on and on. And then we go to another um, article uh, Farmers, Paul Taylor article uh, in The Guardian, farmers are in revolt and Europe's climate policies are crumbling. Welcome to the age of green lash. Well, that's another um, term I hadn't heard, but I think I know what he means by green lash. Uh, you know, people, the lashing is happening and mm-hmm. people are falling away. So, you know, I, I remember saying late last year, my hope was that this would just start disintegrate, disintegrating. And I think it is... And I know you warn me every time you're you're pushing it too far, too quick, Don. It's not that it's not happening just today, but I see the the sentiment change. And look, it hasn't changed in New Zealand. That's the problem. We've got a lot of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. Haven't we? We do. We <laughs> do. We do. We are actually still hellbent on the same route, just like we were when the vaccine was failing in Israel and other countries in the Northern Hemisphere, we continue down the merry path. And this week, uh, just gone, Auckland University now has had a study that says, oh, it can cause, what was it, blood, brain, and uh, other disorders, and heart disorders. But of course, uh, Helen produces Harris, as she says, it's just a small amount, nothing major, very tiny fraction. We will continue down this path of ESG for a while more, Dawn. Yes, and in New Zealand, uh, it seems that we want to be the the poster child for everything in the world. And you're right. I watched. I listened to um, um, the health. Uh, what's her What's her role, Patusas Harris? What's her role? She is in charge of our vaccine program. She is also right. in. You know, she is sort of works for a global vaccine uh, program, which is out of Auckland, which operates sure. out of Auckland University, a monitoring program. Mm. So I did listen to her output and I thought, oh, that's very convenient the way this has been framed when you know there's plenty of others that could put or could add to her um, content and make it really count. And I do sense that that's growing thanks to the likes of RCR and um, and Voices for Freedom and others uh, trying to lift the ante on this and sort of say there's a lot more to see in here and we want to see it. Don't yeah. think you're going to brush this under the carpet because you won't get away with it. You abs- they absolutely won't. I had put up a post of this on one of these groups and a gentleman named Steve Nesbitt responded on this one. He says, 
He quoting the article saying the risks were very small. And Steve says, meanwhile, I'm eight weeks out from a stroke, waiting to hear the date of my next operation as they found in other aneurysm. My brother is just out of hospital after a stroke two, two weeks ago. And my son, 34, healthy and fit, sits in hospital, having just been diagnosed with pericarditis. Lightning has struck the same family thrice. Mm. So these people deserve better. Uh, they des deserve better. And, uh, you know, I guess that's going to take some of the people that have been affected, in fact, more of them to come forward and say, this is, this is my story. This yeah. is my story. We need it documented. And I have to still take my hat off again to Linda Wharton for her fantastic work that she's done. Um, and if, it, if, if someone is listening out there, especially if you're from the rural sector, get in touch with us at inbox at the rate reality check radio. We'd like to listen and speak with you, your story about how the mandates affected you working, living in the rural sector. It doesn't have to be necessarily, uh, you know, you maybe you didn't have the vaccine. How did you negotiate your life, your business and so on? We'd love to do something uh, and love to talk more on this. So please get in touch with us. Meanwhile, on to the next climate crazy headline. This one from another utopian paradise, Canada. A politician there by the name of Charlie Angus has tabled a private member's bill. That arguably ranks as one of the most illiberal pieces of legislation to ever hit the House of Commons order paper. The act called the Fossil Fuel Advertising Act would prescribe jail time for any sort of fossil fuel advertising, even if, I mean, any sort of promotion. So, you know, the ones like the jingles that come on TV or on radio, Z is for New Zealand or your uh, local uh, fuel station advertising coffee and a donut or some points, well, Canada wants to penalize that, prosecute that, mm -hmm. any sort of fossil fuel advertising. I wonder how much of uh, his life stuff that he uses consists of uh, fossil fuels. Does he wear a fossil fuel-derived jacket, sneakers, <laughs> e-gear? I can, your mind just boggles. Well, that's the hypocrisy of these people. They will be wearing synthetic uh, clothes sometime. Um, you know, if it's their trainers, whatever, there'll be some synthetic um, mm -hmm. in their in their mix, and they will be in denial. I missed. I'll never forget. I missed my nuclear moment when um, I was addressing a um, function in Wellington, and the professor that would attack me for being a climate denier. I should have said and I won't mention his name at the end of this, where I was getting harangued and harassed, I should have said, Professor, you are positively dripping in oil. Everything he everything he was wearing was nylon or, and synthetic. Everything. Uh, he'd been out running or training before this meeting, and um, I could have nailed him. But there you go. You miss your moment. You never get it again. <laughs> Do you have anything more on the climate crazy, Don? Well, not really, but I do have um, uh, sort of the peak absurdity of the week. Probably, Let's I just was it. a bit. I was a bit, bit mystified when the prime minister went to open a bridge. I uh, forget where it was, somewhere on the east coast, I think. Mm. And Wakakotahi obviously had been given the memo that uh, their branding was to be taken off. There was going to be no um, Maori words on their high vis gear, so they had to get new gear for the entourage and the prime minister. So that gear cost $300 and uh, it came up with no branding. Well, you'd think that 
common sense says, what's wrong with that? But no, the media thought they'd better have a, have a wee dig at it. But I'd have even a bigger dig. It's all irrelevant. It's virtue signalling of the highest order. There was no health and safety risk to the Prime Minister on that bridge that day. It's a brand new bridge. There was no, or I think it made me a flyover type thing, you know, mm-hmm. a sort of causeway. Um, and, you know, I've been caught up on this where you have to wear white hats and and high vis gear mm-hmm. when you're in a when you're in a suit. It isn't going to make you're not causing any risk to anybody anywhere. So let's get over this um, crazy world where everything has to have a health and safety bent, and you actually have to be in orange gear with white hats. It doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make anyone any safer when you're already in a safe environment. So that's one. That's one. That's the um, peak absurdity. It's it's a minor thing. I know I'm making a mountain out of a bowl, no, no. but the media, mainstream media had a go at it. And mm-hmm. good on the prime minister. He said he's got bigger things to think about, basically. He told him to naff off. Um, but the other one, and it's been talked about time and time again, but my grift of the week, grifter of the week, has to be the former finance minister, former deputy prime minister occasionally, um, becoming the vice-chancellor of Otago University. I mean, is that not nepotism? He clearly has a lot of mates in there. I've had colleagues say to me, Don, he couldn't even run a pee-up in a brewery. Mm -hmm. And we letting him, we let him run the country in the financial sense, and we're going to let him run an Otago University that is in massive debt already. I don't know. He's one of that 90s gaggle that seemed to get into a lot of uh, positions, like the former prime minister. Well over half a million. Well over half a million dollar payday, ain't it? Total package, 629 total payday. Um, uh, all, All components added in. That makes being a politician look sick. Yeah, what a plum job. I know. So, you know, I, I wouldn't let the guy uh, loosen my finances. So don't know how other New Zealanders are thinking, but there you go. It's what happens when you've got cronies, crony well, it's, mates. It's, it's rather fitting, isn't it? The university is in a deficit. Grant Robertson left our books in the same shape, the country's books. It's just fitting he goes to a university that's in the exact same state of affairs. Well, it's in there exactly. I actually happen to know a former vice chancellor of Otago University, and um, I know that he would have been rigorously uh, and ruthlessly efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that's been happening the last sort of six or eight years there. And uh, yeah, it's disappointing. I see um, formally, I don't know whether it still happened, the Institute of Directors were sort of assisting in their. Um, assessment of the vice chancellor and um, that's what they used to do whether they did it for this one i don't know but you know, you know i used to be a member of the institute of directors and i left because of um their esg dei stuff it was just all pervasive everything they did and so esg dei it's alive and well in iod and no doubt at Otago university if only more men found their spine like you to don and walk away from stuff like that that's what hmm. we need. And but somehow for many people, it's, it's going along is far easier, isn't it? Well, it certainly could have made my life easier, uh, it, as it does for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, look, but hey, that's that's life. That's history. Life passes hmm. you by. 
Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And uh, often I have to pinch myself as to uh, the number of guests we're able to get from overseas uh, through uh, basically other guests telling us good names. And today is no exception. A couple of weeks ago, we had Tom DeVise on from the American Policy Center. And I watched a few videos uh, of his series called Catching Fire. Uh, and there's a, a name that came up in that, and that was Dr. Ileana Johnson. And Tom kindly gave me his uh, her email address. And so here today we have Dr. Ileana Johnson from Washington, D.C., and she's got a story uh, that we need to hear. Now, there's two parts to this. One will be her formative years in Romania, then coming to America, and the second part will be what she has observed today. Now, you, if you read or look up Ileana, she's a prolific writer and author, got multiple degrees, uh, and is uh, very very well thought of in many circles. And in fact, she's published her own blog since 2010 called Ileana Writes. And there's a massive amount of reading to do in there. I've read quite a lot of it. I've even read articles that uh, she had published in Sir David Frost's The Review in 2013. Um, That's a pretty august British journal. So, Eliana, it's great to have you on our show. It's our privilege, and uh, we're so grateful that you can give us your time and your life story, because uh, as you write about uh, leaving Rom- or being born in Romania, living your first 19 years there, and heading to the States, um, that's a massive step. And, you know, we live a comfortable life in New Zealand, um, you've obviously had to find your way in the world and you've got a lot of life experience. So we'd love to hear about it. Let's start at the very beginning. Where where were you born? Okay, so I was born in Romania um, and uh, I lived there for 20 years. And the first opportunity I had to leave uh, after I met a Dashian American guy was to marry him. And um, it took about four years to even be able to do that that way legally. Uh, and I had to pay for my uh, former education in Romania, which included two years of college. And uh, so uh, to make a long story short, uh, it was not easy to leave. And I was even at the airport and they tried to stop me because I had forgotten to sign my passport. And we had to bribe them, bribe them with a package of Kent cigarettes. And I wrote about all of this in my first book, Echoes of Communism, how, what it was like when I first came to America and what it was like living in Romania. And it's stories by religion, education, and that sort of thing. So I came to Southern United States and, uh, I decided quite early on that I wanted to further my education, which I would not have had the opportunity to in Romania because you had to be a Communist Party member. Um, and it didn't matter how good of a student you were, if you, your parents were not Communist Party members and highly educated and high activists in the party, you had a very a low chance of ever doing that. So that was my T 
ticket to be educated to the level that I wanted to be. That's why I have so many degrees. Wow. So, so, so can we just go back though, to your really early years in Romania and um, what, you know, being brought up in, uh, in a country that by reading your, your output, it sort of suggests you had very little um, to come and go on as a household and in a, a family sense. Um, it was like uh, you had to almost fight for everything you had. Uh, the food supply was always short. Yes. You know, how, when, at what age did you find that that was something that you could detect was a problem? Well, it was kind of early on. I was six years old, and I remember my mother giving me money and sending me to the nearby uh, kind of strip mall where there was a bread store and a grocery store to stand in line in line to buy bread. And I remember holding the money in my fist. And uh, I was six years old. I stood in line and bought uh, a loaf of bread and it smelled so good. And I would always eat the crust, part of the crust. And I had the change in my other hand. <laughs> and I knew I would get chastised once I got home. But I was we were hungry all the time because we could not find food. Um, so every day was a struggle to stand in various lines to find food. So we were all very thin, which uh, by standards in the U.S., that's a good thing because they think you're healthy. But we were not healthy because we did not have proper nutrition. We uh, didn't have protein most of the time. And we couldn't find milk. We couldn't find butter um, and things that people take for granted in the grocery stores. We couldn't find toilet paper. Uh, we couldn't find drugs. So at an early age, six, I knew that it was a struggle to find food. Yeah. So and what role were you, you know, effectively after the Second World War, who actually pulled the strings in Romania compared to, say, in um, West Germany? It was uh, the Bolsheviks, actually, the Russians. Mm -hmm. They uh, came to Romania to, quote unquote, save us because Romania changed sides from fighting the with the Germans to fighting against the Germans. So uh, the Russians came into Romania to... Uh, to take out the rest of the troops that remained in Romania. And they stayed for 15 years afterwards to make sure that there would be a Bolshevik regime installed in the country. So they kicked, you know, the king out and the monarchy out, and they installed the first communist president. And, uh, of course, after him, there was the second president, Ceausescu, who unfortunately stayed in power until 1989, December, Christmas, 89. It's interesting. Uh, you know, most of us don't know that sort of history, um, actually, because actually, to, to be blunt, we've never had to worry about it. This down mm. under, you just think life's good. The Second World War's over. Everything, freedom's on its way. We're, we're, it's fabulous. The, the thing that I do remember, um, Eliana, when I was little, I had a stamp collection, a postage stamp collection, and I'll never oh, did forget. did I? 
The stamps from Romania and Hungary were the best stamps. They were the most colourful um, stamps, and I used to have pages of them. I thought it was fabulous, and I thought, what a great country uh, Romania must be. They've got these fabulous stamps. But clearly it was not a pleasant place. Mm. No, no, it was not. And we didn't have water. We did not have heat most of the time. Uh, the electricity was cut off. Um uh, daily, we didn't have hot water. Then daily, we didn't have cold water. And it was very hard to live there. Very, very hard. People lived under the worst of circumstances. And of all the communist countries in Eastern Europe, Romania had the worst regime. Wow. And, and so what was the Romanian economy make up in that year, those years? What was it that um, actually gave you some semblance on an economy? Well, it was mostly an agrarian uh, economy. Uh, the agriculture was good, and they had confiscated all the land and united them under the quote-unquote leadership of the Communist Party, who had no idea what they were doing. Um, but And from whatever they could uh, harvest each year, they took a, a big chunk, and then whatever was left, they... Um, they gave it to whoever planted the crops, all the former landowners who were forced to work for the regime. And then in the city, you had the proletariat, the ordinary people who were obligated to work in factories for about the same salary. So they were equally miserable, so to speak, and poor, with the exception of the Communist Party activists who were hired at various factories in various departments, and they were supposed to spy on the workers. They were supposed to give them lessons on how to be a good communist. And one such person was the father of my childhood friend that I'm still friends with today. To this day, we talk on the phone periodically. And I remember she always had food. Her mother made good stuff. She never had to stand in line. They always had better clothes. They could find shoes. They could find clothes for wintertime. And uh, I asked her, I said, what was your daddy, a communist apparatchik in the factory? And she said, yes, he was. And when he died, he left all these communist books around. And I said, what did you do with them? She goes, I threw them out in the trash. Um, and I said, oh, well, you shouldn't have. You should have mailed them to me. <laughs> she said, well, I didn't know you would want them. Well, they, they would have made good reference books since mm -hmm. I'm a writer. But, yeah, that's how they lived so much better than we did. And occasionally we'd, we'd get the crumbs. The kids, uh, her mom would invite us over and we'd have a crumb of something that we haven't seen in months. Or at Christmas time. My father would buy me an orange or a banana, or um, he would find some shriveled up grapes, almost turned into raisins, and that was my treat at Christmas. Wow. What did your parents do, Eliana? Uh, my father was a mechanic in a, a, a refinery, mm -hmm. and uh, my mother was a homemaker a lot of her life, but then she worked in a bread factory as well for extra income because we didn't have enough money. 
Um, and my father, because everybody knew he was very anti-communist and very outspoken and hated Ceausescu, uh, they would kind of periodically beat him up. Uh, or when Ceausescu would come by in the vicinity of the town where we were, they would arrest him at his place of work and put him in a room until Ceausescu departed. And oh, he died in May of May 12 of 89. They beat him up again. They beat him periodically and they threw him from a scaffold that was like a ninth story level into a big um, pit filled with metal shavings from a lathe. And it really uh, cut him up very badly and it cracked his skull and had a subdural hematoma. And I think it took him, oh, about three weeks to die because he was in a hospital, but they didn't treat him in any way. They didn't put him on IV fluids. Um, his sister gave him a little bit of water with a spoon, but no nutrition. So he'd lost about half of his body weight by the time he died. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't able to talk to him or go see him. And we had tried for years to bring him here um, as well, because I'm an only child, but uh, they did not give him um, a visa. And finally, they approved a visa to come for my graduation. I was uh, getting my PhD and um, President Bush at the time, the father was doing the commencement and he was going to hand me the diploma and I wanted my dad to be there. And um, he died the day before I graduated. Oh, gosh. Oh, so, but he did have the visa finally. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's like, too, too grim. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, it's, it's great you can share that. And uh, this is a salutary warning. I mean, this, this show, we're trying to bring the stories uh, from your history, your life to New Zealand to tell people this is what it looks like when things aren't right in your governance of your country. And, you know, Eliana, um, yeah, I never never knew that we were going to get to that that point in this discussion, and it's it's unbelievably believably salutary to try and gain regain some composure here. Can you tell me what is the economy of the Romanian? What does it look like today in Romania? What is what's the transition to? Well, as Ceausescu, the, the tyrant, the communist dictator, became more powerful, he decided that the direction to go for the country was to industrialize it. So they actually sold um, agricultural products to the West. And with the money they got in hard currency, they built a lot of projects. But all these factories were not really um, how should I say? They're not very productive. Yep. They were productive in terms of the communists, but they weren't really making a profit. They were heavily subsidized. Um, uh, however, he was the only Eastern Bloc country or tyrant who did not have debts to the West because whatever money they borrowed from banks, they paid it back. But they did that to the detriment of the standard of living of the population. So the population was so impoverished 
and the Western banks had nothing to forgive in terms of loans like they did in other countries, other Soviet bloc countries. So their citizens lived a lot better than the Romanians did. But anyway, when he was executed Christmas 89, uh, there was a lot of confusion and the former communists stole a lot of the uh, things that were in the patrimony of the country and the money and they became millionaires and billionaires overnight. And by the time people got their bearings together, it was too late. So the country was in economic dire straits. Uh, and unfortunately, the first few presidents after him, they were former communist buddies in the same communist party. So they didn't do things that were beneficial for the population. But with time, they became part of the European Union in 2007. So at that point, the standard of living of the population had improved by necessity because they had to. Uh, so they built a, a better uh, schools, hospitals, and uh, uh, they built some churches, but the population had been so brainwashed, they resented all the churches they had built because they felt like, well, you should have built more schools and more hospitals instead of churches. And uh, But people finally had food, could find food, and they were no longer starving. Um, some of the medical care was better if you had money to pay privately, but the socialized medicine was still um, pretty bad. Uh, they ran out of money uh, in the middle of the year, sometimes even before. So um, the general population's standard of living did not improve as much as people had expected. In the cities, yes, but not in the country. Right. So um, right now they're doing better. However, a lot of the enterprises or factories that were not profitable had been closed or sold to the West and they brought uh, factories and they're doing other things with the land or with the buildings. If if I may ask, and you know, I know you left Romania early, but you've you've stayed in close touch and followed your homeland as I, if I might refer to it like that. What does yes. living under a communist regime do to, in, in your opinion, do to the people of a country, their temperament? If I was That's flippant, a very good I, question. I would say that when the incentives finish for people to work towards something, I would say it would breed hypocrisy, laziness, or maybe just not wanting to go ahead, just average is good enough. What do you think? I think a, a lot of them became depressed and accepted their fate. They became lazy. They were expecting that. It's like almost like a dog. You're you're not treated very well, but you're expecting that handout uh, once a day. It may yeah. not be enough, but it's a handout. And I say this because my uh, one of my cousins, uh, she has since passed away, was telling me on one of my trips that she missed Ceausescu because. <laughs> They didn't have to work very hard. They could pretend to work and they pretended to pay them. But it was something. They didn't have to really try very hard. That's what she said. And I was just appalled at that. So they have this misplaced nostalgia uh, of something that was in the past. And it must have been better because now I'm old and I don't have to really try. And 
I wished I could still get that that kind of feeling. But people were very distrustful of each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had to watch who they spoke to and what they said to, including their own relatives. And sometimes children turned in their parents and the state took the parents away and they never saw them again. And the children were taken to orphanages and became sort of indoctrinated by the Communist Party, and they were really staunch communists. So it was sad, very well, sad. And I can almost don't reflect on it with the welfare state and how some some way today we see in the West. I mean, I come from India where there is no welfare. Literally, there's a bit of families absolutely on the poverty line. There is in-kind transfer of pulses, lentils, wheat, and rice, but there's no welfare state. And what you are saying is, what happened was people pretended to be productive. The state pretended you threw them a few crumbs and everyone just went along. And is that not the very antithesis of the human spirit of endeavoring towards something? Yeah, I think it killed the human spirit. And I think the only way they could survive without just going nuts, they would live for get-togethers with their families at large when they had baptisms or weddings or funerals. It was the time to feel like a normal human being because the rest of the time you were just kind of an insect. That's how you were treated by uh, the government. And my husband couldn't understand when he visited Romania several times, why couldn't he go into the city hall building and when I took my five-year-old daughter um, and she put her feet in a fountain downtown, the police appeared out of nowhere. They had an underground facility right there. You are defacing our fountain. She's five-year-old, five years old. She's hot. She doesn't understand that. We come from a different culture. Well, if you don't get her out, I'm going to arrest both of you. Uh, So it it was just a very, it was always us, the proletariat against them. And then you had enemies among the proletariat, sometimes among your own relatives. And as payment, they would get extra food from the party or a little extra money. It was like like a dog getting extra handouts because they didn't want to die. So they did whatever the owner order them to do. Unbelievable. Um, Eliana, what is the um, predominant religion in Romania today then? what, what have, The what largest religion to? is Orthodox. Right. Germans and Germans, people of that origin. There are some mosques at the Black Sea because Romania fought the Ottoman Empire for 500 years. Um, and, uh, you know, Pretty much any religion is free now, but that was not the case during the communist regime. Uh, Ceausescu considered uh, some denominations as uh, the occult and forbade them entirely. And if he allowed the Orthodox Church to uh, exist in the Catholic Church, the priest had to be beholden to the Communist Party too, and they had to indoctrinate the parishioners into the party line, which they did. But I was shocked in 2015 when I went to this one church, I think you read it in my last article, uh, Don, I'm not sure, uh, where 
uh, there's a memorial to a guy who set himself on fire. He committed suicide on this uh, ski slope that was very popular with foreigners and some rich locals. And he did it to protest Ceausescu's regime. So they raised this memorial and right next to it, there was a beautiful wooden church that didn't used to be there. So I went inside and I saw the young priest and he came up to me and we struck up a conversation and I asked him about the memorial outside. And he said to me, and it shocked me. So he said, well, if he had listened to what the communist party told him to do, he would might still be alive today. And I thought, what? This is 2015. Um, communism is forbidden since 89. Yeah, so that, I was shocked. There and this was a young person. I think he was maybe 28 years old. Oh, it's, it's from the side of the planet. It almost seems hard to fathom and believe the stories you're telling but it's so vital we hear them. Um, I've traveled into Europe. I've heard stories from um, uh, an Austrian uh, fighter who had to hide in the, uh, I think it's the Corinthian mountains for years before he could come back out. Uh, the stories that we have never heard in New Zealand. Um, Eliana, it's, it's touching to hear them. Uh, we could go on all day. I think, but let's have a break and let's come back after the break and talk about your writings and your observations of the West and what it's doing to itself in 2024. We'll be back after the break. Thank you so much. You're with Greenwash. This is Just Breathe and John. 2057 is our number. We will be back in a moment. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back, listeners. You're with Greenwashed, Don and me. And we have with us today, Ileana Johnson from Washington. And if you listen to the first half of the segment, we spoke about her life growing up in the communist Romania before she migrated to the US. And as a former economics professor with over three decades of teaching experience and her background in a communist country, and then moving to the US, supposedly the absolute bastion of freedom, she has a unique perspective of what it is like to grow up in a totalitarian regime and then valuing freedom, many of the things that we take for granted today. Yet, Ileana has gone on to write books such as Liberty on Life Support, The United Nations Agenda 21, and one wonders, one would think, Eliana, that coming from Romania and living in the U.S., you would be completely feeling carefree and there would be nothing else that would provoke you to be writing books on communism. After all, that's what you fled, didn't you? So yes, let's absolutely. talk about life in the U.S. now. Yes. Uh, well, so when I first came... Uh, I was trying to find a job as a substitute teacher because I didn't know. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I thought, let's try substitute. And um, 
I just found a lot of strange things such as we can't just take anybody off the street. You have to be licensed. And I learned that Jimmy Carter had instituted the Department of Education in 1979, and you had to literally be licensed and approved by the College of Education. And I found the graduates of this College of Education to be actually very shallowly educated in terms of actual uh, knowledge. Uh, they knew how to make a cute lesson plan, um, but that was about it. And um, they were just so controlling of other people and of students. And um, I, I didn't like that. And I thought, wow, these people know so little. I know I have forgotten more than these people know, and they have a license. And they don't let people with an arts and science degree or a doctorate teach unless they approve it. The Department of Education approve it, approves it. So I found that rather strange. And I saw early signs of indoctrination into communism because I would look at my students and I would look at various conferences, what the curricula was that these college professors were devising for teachers who were teaching in our public schools and they were devoid of content most of the time but they had a lot of marxism in the lesson plans and all the little gimmicks yeah. um, that they would come up with uh, for example everybody thought when i first came that noam chomsky oh he's just a wonderful educator he has a degree in linguistics and a phd and, oh, he says that uh, you learn languages better when you're young. Really? That's a given. And that grammar is about the same in all languages. Yes, because we're all uh, stemming from Indo-European languages. So it was just common sense stuff that these people were making it like they invented language. And it's, I don't know, it just bothered me. And as more years went by, if I would say, but maybe we should do this this way because it's more logical. And I, I would be told by the dean, well, this is how we do it in this country. And if you don't like it, you can go back where you came from. <laughs> and then I would see how my children were treated by uh, colleagues and other Americans in the southern town that we lived uh, they were considered children of foreigners uh, because my mom didn't speak English. So my children spoke fluently Romanian, but they would ask me in private, uh, can you please not speak to us in public in Romanian, speak in English? Or they would tell my mother, can you not speak so loudly? Well, uh, Because we don't want people to know that you are foreign. So it, there were just subtle signs everywhere. It was yeah. amazing you said that because right when I came to New Zealand in the very beginning, I remember going to one one of these they have these discussion groups, and a fellow farmer was talking about how one of their farm workers, my husband and I are farmers, had been giving them a lot of issues, and a couple of those were very serious. One of the you could even call it theft of some things from the farm. And I very innocently asked. So I said, so why is he still working for you? And this gentleman replies to me. He says, you're new here, aren't you? He says, I can't. I need to give him three trials. Then this needs to happen. And then if I, if I sack him right now, he says, I could be sued. And I was amazed. I said, this guy is actually your farm worker is stealing from you. 
And you are that worried. This happened pretty much within three or four months of my landing in New Zealand because our boss thought it's good for my husband and I to go out and meet fellow farmers at other. And I, I just couldn't believe it, that this is what is happening. You, you know the guy is stealing from you. You have proof of that and you can't because the Department of Labor or you face a big fine. And a similar thing happened when I went to university here. I went to an open day of a big, you know, a well-known university. And very little of that day was about accounting. A large part of the day was about mental wellness, pastoral support, physical wellness, sexual wellness services available, uh, budgetary advisory and all. And I was like, wow, I, I want to do a degree. And there they are, molly coddling me. And I went home and I told my husband, I said, I'm doing this extramurally. And I did it extramurally because I just wasn't happy. I didn't understand it then, but I now I look at it, it's the state outreach far more to what their brief was, you know. If it's teaching, just teach. Don't have an open day like this because I, I was used to someone coming from India, a lecturer plonking books. This is what you need to do. These books need to be read. This is the grade you need to get. So I sort of felt, I don't recognize it, didn't recognize it then, Don, but I think it'll be what would you... I would term as a socialist tupper now. What I, I remember when I went to the first university and uh, I brought my transcript from Romania because I did go to college there for two years before I moved here. And I had um, my coursework and some was stuff like scientific socialism. And first of all, there's nothing scientific about socialism. It's just a dogma. Uh, is just a theory that Karl Marx came up with. Um, but, you know, we had to study that. And I remember the professor laughing, oh, we can't give you credit for that. And I thought, wow, today, if I brought my transcript with uh, scientific socialism, um, I had it for two years, I'd probably get six hours credit, college credit. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some semblance of normalcy at that time in the South, when I went to college, some of my professors were not hardcore communists, but I had one guy who was from Harvard, was an economics professor, and he would come sit on the desk with his legs crossed in a yogi position in his Hirachi sandals, and he would just start talking about his sex life at Harvard, and we had to study economics. I think we did um, <laughs> I can't remember what it is. I think it was managerial economics. We had to study on our own in, all, in order to pass the test. He was definitely a commie, at least so, a socialist. So so taking it right back, I mean, I, I'm not even university educated, and it took me until recent years to open my eyes and, and start to observe better and read um, just a little bit about the genesis of all of this stuff that we're talking about here. Um, and you talked about Karl Marx, and um, and then I learned of uh, the formative progressive movement was around 1890, I gather, and led into some Green Party sort of policies or politics. But of course, there was Antonio Gramsci in the in the 20s that talked about, I think it was the 20s, talked about the long march through the institutions. And as soon as I read that, uh, and I didn't read lots about them, you will have read lots more. My eyes and ears uh, put it, well, I sort of put it all together. And um, and then I had another guy tell me about the Fabian Society and a whole, uh, the whole, you know, the, the 
patchwork sort of all formed uh, into something whole for me. And you see it through our universities, through our um, professions. Everybody has awakened to the resolve of the Marxist communist agendas. It's, it has been a long march through the institutions. And of course, J uh, uh, Jasper, in the last six years in New Zealand, it came here in steroids. Um, mm. We see, I think we're observing it in the United States as well, Eliana. Um, would that be fair to say? I mean, but yeah, most most definitely. Before they were kind of in hiding, but now they're not hiding anymore. Yeah. And uh, frankly, you know, when a lot of the German, you know, the Fabian socialists were chased out of or ran away from Hitler, they came to New York and they went to uh, different universities in the area and they went to Columbia and they started um, the school of, um, you know, educating future teachers and they fanned out across the country and they themselves taught other teachers how to be socialist slash communist. So now they're no longer in hiding. They're just out in the open. I, I saw them when they were not in hiding, when they would go to conferences of for the College of Education and they were like the darlings of the lecture circuit. And whatever they said was the most important thing in education. And, oh, we have to implement it right away. And we have to write new books. The glossier, the better. Oh, and let's make workbooks. Let's make tests so the teachers don't have to do anything except impart this Marxist education that's emphasizing feeling good and sexuality and revolution and never mind the actual content that the students needed to retain. Um, so I saw it, but what could we do? Because we were outsiders. We were not part of the uh, National Teachers Association and other uh, unions. As a matter of fact, uh, the last two years before I retired, we actually had to fight to keep our jobs because we had PhDs and they were forcing us to go back to school to learn how to be teachers after 25 and 30 oh, yes. years of education uh, from some greenhorn uh, student from the College of Education. They had to watch our teaching and supervisors in the classroom. And it was just outrageous. But that now is, the Marxists haven't they united? Sorry, John. Yeah, they have united. It's outrageous, uh, that last comment. I mean, I've noted it in many professions. They have these point systems that you've got to keep your points up to date by going back to school and making sure you've relearned what you um what they want you to learn, sorry. It wasn't uh, even about that. It was about, they felt like if you don't have the license, you cannot teach. No. Never mind, you have four degrees and you have a doctorate, you cannot teach. You can teach in college, but you can't teach cannot. public schools. And what we what we see now is, and what you've uh, referred to very extensively in your book, United Nations Agenda 21, Environmental Piracy, if we come to that, the Marxists seem to have all united and the United Nations agendas seem to be, you know, we've replaced the 10 planks of Marxism with the goals of Agenda 21. I can literally synonymously use these terms these days. And we seem to have, especially out in the West, we have governments 
that while pretending to be also oh kind and trying to be also oh fair, which is where socialism used to be, let's redistribute everything, let's be fair. We now have our Western governments, especially spearheading this. And the playbook is the one from Agenda 2030 or Agenda 21, whatever they decide to call it, whatever the flavor of the month. And mm -hmm. environment seems to be their single, I mean, their last bit of ammunition is environment. Everything is about the environment. You don't want to, you can't wear this. You can't drive this. You can't eat this. You can't go here, there, and everywhere. And it's all to save the planet. How convenient, isn't it? And I don't know if in New Zealand you have uh, chemical aerial spraying, but here in uh, Northern Virginia, we very seldom have clear blue skies anymore. Today was an exception. They did not spray with anything. <laughs> so the skies were beautiful. There were a few airplanes crossing above, but they expelled air vapor and it dispersed immediately. When they spray chemicals, they stay and stay and stay and they start spreading and spreading and it's all in a grid pattern and eventually that grid uh, starts moving and they become this just thick uh, gray mass of ugliness and then you start smelling whatever chemicals they sprayed it comes down to the ground several hours later and the air just smells horrible like chemicals uh, so uh, yeah it, and it, i think it's all over the world i've seen it in romania i've seen it in europe done um, so so that's uh i mean i that's blown my mind. I um, have no idea uh, about that. Um, you know, there's there is people in New Zealand talking about it happening here too, uh, but I I haven't had the proof. Um, uh, and, and I do. You know, I'll be glad to send you pictures of the sky. I look right. at the sky every day, and I can point. Okay, this is chemtrails, and this is contrails. The contrails it's air vapors that evaporate quickly. Sure. from the tail of an airplane. Well, chemtrails is different. They stay and they spread and it's right. awful. So they want to block what's, out the sun. Is that what they're trying to do? Yeah, they're trying. And of course, uh, several of the billionaires here in the U.S. are not shy about saying that, yeah, we need to spray the air so we can block out the harmful rays of the sun um, in order to mitigate global warming. But that's ridiculous. We need CO2. We don't need it piped underground. They use CO2 in greenhouses to intensify the growth of plants. Uh, without it, we'll, we'll be in trouble. We're going to starve. Wow. Alina, you refer to in your book, uh, United Nations Agenda 21, Environmental Piracy. You refer to the main goals of United Nations 21, Agenda 21, redistribution of population according to resources government control of land to achieve equitable distribution of resources, land use control through zoning and planning, government control of excessive profits from land use, rural and urban land use. And the more I read through it, the more it seems we are being tied into these knots. We are being strangled by bureaucratic red tape. And it's all under the guise of environmentalism here. And I mean, I only have to look around myself being on a farm here, the amount of legislation that's coming through to strangle us, to stop us from being able to, you know, be productive in any way. 
the same thing that the communists use or socialists, whatever you may call them. And the zoning wars, we have national policy statements out here in New Zealand on productive soils. They were supposedly to stop productive rural land going into housing. But now, again, there's major control about what you can do. You can own a property. That's fine. But they decide what you will do with that property. What's it like in the States with all the smart growth agenda and everything? It's pretty much the same way. We had to fight in Virginia several years ago. Um, This lady had a farm and she had it under um, conservation easement, which Mm. meant that she couldn't do anything to it unless the NGOs that held the contract of conservation easement approved it. So we, she took it to court. We went to Richmond. Um, anyway, it was just a lengthy battle and she finally won. So if you do have a conservation easement in Virginia, you can do certain things with it without the approval of the conservation easement holders, which usually are a non-governmental organization who lured you in to agreeing to sign this easement um, by offering you a reduction in taxes or some other uh, incentive that the farmer was too dumb to really research into it and see, okay, am I going to lock down my land in perpetuity and I can't do anything? I can't even clear out a a rain puddle without approval or I can't let the cows sit in the shade of this tree or this group of three of trees because it interferes with the view shed. So we're doing okay. But in other parts of the country, um, they they now have that 30-30 agenda. I don't know if you're familiar with it. By 2030, um, the president, our president said that we have to take over 30% more of the private land. And to do that, one of the things they're going to do, have to do is these conservation easements in order to control private property or just simply to buy people out by offering, uh, large amounts per acre, much more than the going market rate. And right now, uh, out west, the federal government owns 50% of the land in Nevada. They own 80 to 90% of the land, uh, and other places even more. So out west, they already own big chunks of land. Now by 2050, they have a plan which is 50 by 50. So they have to own 50% of the private land. Um, Maybe people will sell. Um, I don't know who's going to do agriculture and they're going to do spray crops with, uh, I don't know, with drones. They're going to have these agri-cores. They started building these 15-minute cities. We just had the first one open in Tempe, Arizona. Um, We we often make the mistake, I think, of assuming that Agenda 2030 is only affecting rural people. It's not it's no. only affecting farmers. But you you live in the, close to Washington. If you yeah. could explain to us, how does it affect your day-to-day life? How does it impact you well, as a Well, in our dweller? county, when we moved here 16 years ago, there were forests everywhere. It was beautiful. Now, the only trees left are pretty much, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but <laughs> it's a forest of the state park, which is about 16... 16- 100 acres or something like that. Anyway, 
the rest of it has been cut down. They they just keep building these high-rise apartments and building and building. And they're stripping the land where pretty soon it's just going to be one big um, apartment complex uniting. Um, I don't know how they're going to transform suburbia into 15-minute cities because people are too spread out. We have too much territory. But it is possible in metropolitan areas like in Tempe, Arizona, where people can't have cars. And I heard this lady from the UK talking about uh, Oxford, England has a 15-minute city. And apparently you can only exit it to through the gate closest to where your house is and you only have a hundred exits and entries a year and of course they do it mm. with your license plate and if you exceed that then you get a fine so if you let's say you live at close to gate a and let's say your mother or sister lives at gate d which is uh you could reach it by just crossing uh, the circular area directly. No, yep. you can't do that. You have to come out and you have to go around the circle and come through the gate closest to her. So it's just unbelievable crazy. Mm. Yep. So in, in terms for us is traffic is traffic is pretty much killing because we have influx of everybody from 225 countries just coming to Washington DC because you are, you have the political class and then you have all the incoming illegals. There's not much in between. Isn't, isn't it amazing? There are plenty of jobs. Isn't it amazing how you've got these um, migrants? legal and illegal uh potentially coming to your country and still wishing to fly the flag of their own country uh over yeah, the it's flag. everywhere uh, like i said everybody nobody on our street is flying the american flag except us uh, everybody else is flying the flag of wherever they're from so, and I thought, so well, why don't you just go where you're from if it's better why are you here well, that's the, that's the odd thing. If you want to be a true patriot to your country and recognize um, sovereignty, you would wonder why they can't be truly patriotic and fly the American flag. Um, I mean, if I saw if I saw neighbors flying an alternate flag to the New Zealand flag, I would be very concerned. And so, you know, we, we have got enough minutes left to um, tell the whole story, but we're... What's the next phase of this? Is there, we seem to have a phase of governments of the Marxist type and influences being slowly dismantled in the, in the world, in the West. Um, I noticed the European um, parliaments, there's several of them having a, they call them right, far right, of course, they're probably more centrist of anything. Um, and even in Argentina, there's been a change of government. New Zealand's had a change of government. Australia's looking a bit shaky at the moment. You've got American, uh, you know, the election's coming up for the president. Um, oh, uh, I'm not very positive about the elections. I don't think they're going to be honest. Uh, they've already perfected the art of cheating through these mail-in ballots. Right, right. So, uh, well, my, my point was going to be, uh, aside from that cheating aspect, is there seems to be a trend to um, getting a more 
balanced view? Is that going to stem this tide for long? Or is it going to be that this tide of uh, Marxism, communism just continues until uh, the West totally consumes itself and the East just wins? I don't want to be so pessimistic, but I think the trend will continue to the point where we are going to run out of food and run out of uh, fuel because they're trying to take away our gas stoves. They're trying to take our gas furnaces um, and especially in state Democrat states like New York. And of course, Virginia is for all practical purposes, Democrat. I don't have any representation in this state. Um, and I know as soon as I vote, my vote is nullified by an illegal alien who votes illegally. Yep. Mm. So um, I, I think the trend is going to continue. I don't think it's going to stop. Uh, I think the food supply and the fuel supply and the lack of energy are going to be the turning points. But I can't tell you how it's going to happen. And the fact that we're printing trillions of dollars of money of dollars with no backing and it's causing uh, high inflation. It's not astronomical, but it's high inflation. You go to the grocery store and you spend a hundred dollars and you come back home with one bag, yeah. one small bag. Same, of, same in New, same in New Zealand uh, right. nowadays. So, uh, yep. And they, there's no, uh, there's no stopping in sight of, uh, Congress has fought uh, former President Trump uh, for $6 billion to build the southern border fence because we don't have the money, but we found money, billions and billions, a hundred billions to give to the war effort in Ukraine. And I'm not saying we shouldn't help those people, but we've got our priorities uh, skewed. So when we run out of energy, and the dollar crashes and we have inflation that we cannot control, I think something is going to happen. I just can't tell you what. Don't know what's going to happen. Uh, well, we, we're of the belief that when the citizens of this country find that their pocketbook, is, as you call it, is empty and they can't afford basics uh, of life, uh, anymore uh, to run families, um, things, will, things will change. I mean, we, we have a term oh, over so here. The non-tradable inflation is the problem around us. I mean, and that's government and local government costs. They're all carrying on as if there's no tomorrow. They all have uh, inflationary, you know, wage increase expectations, job expansion expectations. And the only way that can be paid for is uh, by those of us who do real work, generating it from the environment and or producing something. And there's no respect for that here yet. There will have to be respect because the tank is empty. I don't think empty. there's respect for that here either. There's mm. less than 3% of Americans who are involved in farming in this country, and I don't think they're respected at all. I think the millennials and Gen Z and whatever else they think, or Gen X, they think they uh, food comes from the grocery store. Yeah. But I think some of them are waking up because they can't afford basics and they realize they can never afford a house like their parents and grandparents used to. Mm. So do they, they can barely uh, afford the rent. <laughs> does that gener does that generation seem to be concerned about the surveillance state, about digital currency, about you know the what I call the new age feudalism. I mean, 
are they concerned about techno feudalism, for instance? It's it I just don't think they are because they're with their eyes and noses and their devices 24-7. And I've seen them at the airport just offering themselves to have their digital face scanned in at, at TSA in order to travel. And they were just like happy little seals. They didn't see that as an invasion of their privacy, of their who they are. And uh isn't it ironic then, uh, Elena? Eliana, because in Romania, you said your friend's uh, father was sort of the informer of working with them. These days, we don't need informers. We offer ourselves up to this. Yeah, we are the informers. We are the informers. Right. Yep. And if those guys had technology, Stalin and everyone else onwards from him, I mean, from my own experience, I, uh, I, in the early 80s, I, I taught until 2008. And mm -hmm. when I would try to tell my students what life was like under communism and uh, how the system is so much worse than capitalism, uh, they would just laugh. Yeah, OK, um, you were barefoot and pregnant going uphill and downhill in six feet of snow, that sort of thing. So yeah. I just stopped telling them anything because I realized they were so brainwashed. They were incredulous to truth if it slapped them in the face. Not unlike, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a video online by a Yuri uh, Bezmanov who used to be a KGB uh, informer. Um, trainer, whatever, and he defected to the U.S. And he talks about how they can, in 15 years, they can brainwash entire generations of young people and the truth can hit them in the face and they wouldn't believe it. No. Yeah, and I, and I heard you on a, a previous um, uh, podcast, I think it was, it might have been a video with Tom, um, talk about the very same question effectively it was going to be at least 20 years if you started today uh, effectively mm -hmm. in the kindergartens to or the junior schools to get the influence changed uh through that tier of society we've got a mission uh, haven't we uh jasper we've got a mission eliana we've got a mission all around the west to try and hold hold the line i mean i just don't want to see this line go any further than it's gotten away with to date um there is nothing good going to come out of it for our kids there's nothing good going to come out of it for our country and uh i don't i i just despair that our forefathers fought for our liberties our freedoms and we've treated it with scant regard and i'm um look eliana we've done no justice to your story of your life story and the second part really it's so much bigger than we could uh, talk about but we've got to talk about it. We've got to be the storytellers. We've got of to course. let it all out. And so we're just so grateful that you've taken the time and given us your time uh, for our listeners to have part of your life. And um, we're in your debt for having your time. And hopefully we can get you back again very soon. Well, I hope so. I would love to come. Just always remember that if we don't tell these stories and uh our children and grandchildren don't have the experience, they're not going to know who we were, where they came from, and what it was like, because in between, all these nefarious people have written new books about a fake history, so they won't know who they are. Mm. So we well, have I, to tell them. 
I hope your history is not cancelled out because, uh, listeners, you need to go into Eliana Wright's uh, blog. I, have, I think I've got that right. dot uh, com, and um, and just start reading. There's plenty there to last you a night or a week or two, actually. Um, and we need people like Eliana to keep keep her output going because uh, if these stories don't get told, we are just uh, going further into the abyss. So it's a bit of a negative ending to uh, to what I think has been a really important interview, Jasper. But there you go. That's our that's our life. One can't sugarcoat the truth, no matter what it is, isn't it? And that's what we aim to bring our listeners a reality check on what what uh, has been and what lies ahead unless we wake up in a hurry. And I, I am optimistic. Hurry. I mean, wake up. We will. It's just a matter of you can't, uh, you know, push this process for everyone. Everyone has to see things for what they are. And when the economic pain, pain gets real, most see things for what they are. There's only so much you can. So far, you can, you know, dwell on being kind and just and all that jazz. So, Ileana, thank you so much for coming on on Greenwash today. And we hope to have you back and one day really delve into the United Nations agendas. But for now, we are very thank grateful. Thank you, Jaspreet and Don. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Goodbye. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio members and join now. Welcome back to Greenwashed. And if you've just joined us this morning, this is Jaspreet Bupurai and Don Nicholson. And we just had Dr. Eliana Johnson on a minute ago talking about her experiences of moving from going from socialism, escaping Romania, going to the US and finding herself in the same position there. That was quite an interview, uh, very moving. And Don and I hope to have Dr. Eliana back in a few weeks to talk exclusively on the United Nations agendas that she has spent at least two books on to date and uh, sort of pinpoint the root of all of this and how she sees them around her in the US. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with her again soon. But for now, we roll into our next segment, which is Spotlight on NGOs. We did one last week. And this time around, and that's last week, we focused on the Care Institute at Macy. The Care Institute, which is pushing a whole lot of uh, agendas on the treaty, migrants, and socialism, basically. This time around, it's Living Streets Aotearoa. But to go to brass tacks, what's an NGO, you might ask? And why are we focusing on this? I don't. Well, exactly. What is an NGO, Jasperite? I mean, we have perhaps a different view of it. Um, I actually chaired, you might say, an NGO, Federated Farmers, but it really wasn't an NGO because it was self-funded. It didn't get grant money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a union, in effect. So in your in your eyes, what is an NGO? Because I have a view about NGOs, that the, the one, and the ones that are in my sites are the ones that get your money and my money through rates or taxes and get they get grants to exist so they use your often your and my revenue against us Mm -hmm. for for political purpose and i just can't take that well i've got two definitions for you 
going by the dictionary meaning, just translating the abbreviation, NGO stands for non-governmental organization. So, hmm. you know, they're on their own, not a government agency, so not any statutory body. But if I go by the meaning that I heard in one of the World Economic Forum debates, and this was a few years ago, when very glibly I thought, and very correctly, this guy had said, we are now next going to the NGO panel. And as we all know, NGO stands for Next Government Official. And that pretty much says it. The United Nations has said that NGOs are critical partners into pushing or furthering, as they call it, I keep using the word pushing, furthering the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, it is true. When we look at NGOs, I mean, I know I get your point on, you said about the money that, you know, they're using taxpayers' money and sometimes against taxpayers, against what taxpayers uh, want or need. But sometimes there's no money involved. And yet you see these NGOs very active in stuff many of us don't pay much attention to. And Living Streets Aotearoa, their website is www.livingstreets.org.nz is one such one that caught my attention. So uh, recently I was looking at a few you know, council posts uh, from the Nelson Tasman Council, from Wellington Council. And, you know, each time they do this traffic calming stuff and make the streets more pedestrian friendly. And there are people literally saying, you are not doing, you're just, it's a farce of a consultation. You do what you like. It's a pain to drive anywhere now. And there were comments from Living Streets out here on this. Thank you so much, council. Thank you so much. Well done. And we feel much safer. And the school children are tamarikia so much safer. And I looked a bit further into them. And I have... I have to say I have a grudging admiration. This is a very small group, a very small group, I would say. And they are, from what I see, pretty much self-funded. There's not a whole lot of money flowing, you know, from the taxpayers' uh, purse to them. But if you go to the website and look at their submissions, these guys are very, very well organized. They have put just... If I'm looking at the submissions page, just over the last year, they have put nearly 20 submissions to various councils, be it Upper Hutt Safer Speeds or Let's Get Wellington Moving or the Wellington Golden Mile Project or to Land Transport or to Vakakutahi on Sustainable Public Transport. They are all there. And we should appreciate how well organized they are. They talk about streets for people. They talk about getting cars away. They talk about more people walking under the guise of, uh, you know, the climate crisis and reducing emissions. And they have been there for a long time. Their roots and their history page, they go back yeah. to nearly, I mean, 80, 90 years. They were part of an yeah. international organization. And so if any one of us thinks this has just happened and you're only just beginning to see all those road bumps or multiple pedestrian crossings in within a short distance, this has been going on for a long, long time. Yeah, there's been a lot of planning. And I'm going to take issue with you, Jasper, because mm -hmm. you seem to think that there is no funding um, involved. They're a subscription-based, um, very neat little organization. Well, no, 
Mm. They did get government funding till uh, I, I read somewhere, at least till 2008, and now they get grants, and that's the issue. The grants are often coming from local authorities, not just private benefactors. Their grants are coming from ratepayers. So that's my issue. Um, they're existing. They're a lobby group, and they're existing with the use of my money against to you know to the, the sort of desiring that my rate money or my tax money is going to be spent on certain projects that fill their ideals. Now, I, I look. It's all about lobbying, isn't it? It's all about it's all about say, lobbying. And I and I, I should have explained that better. What I meant was, I've looked at the financials and the money there is nothing worth writing home about. There's not a whole lot. There is it's grants. Not, it's I, not I a accept. whole lot. You know, accept thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I accept that. But mm. the concept of that through local government at all levels and central government at all levels builds up to being a lot, and that's what New Zealand is facing right now: a lot of um, poor quality spending. So, I look. I sort of, as you say, grudgingly accept that these people have got quite, quite a wee um, empire going, quite a low cost, but it's a, it's a, it's an influential empire the way they have worked it. And they've got councils spending a lot of money on them, on their projects. So one name that has come up in their uh, history and their people is Celia Wade-Brown, who was a city councillor, Wellington City Councillor, I would say, because Living Streets Out Aotearoa, it says, came out of Walk Wellington in 1998. Mm -hmm. Though the overseas body about walking... can't seem to remember their names, has been there for well over 80 years now. Mm. She was mayor of Wellington for a bit. And if memory serves me rightly, she also, or correctly, she was also a Green MP, maybe. Not mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I should have researched her. But anyway, look, um, yeah, bit of history. Good. Yeah. So the pedestrian, they came out of the Pedestrian Association of the US mm. that was formed in 1929. And slowly, slowly, so these, you can find Living Streets, Wellington, Living Streets, Auckland, Living Streets, USA, Tucson, Arizona, all of these. And they all work towards the same goals, net zero carbon. I mean, their latest news bulletins talk about, and I'm looking at the media releases, they say, Living Streets Aotearoa, a national pedestrian advocacy organization, is very concerned about Transport Minister Simeon Brown's direction to NZTA to end funding for local councils, walking and cycling projects. A national pedestrian advocacy organization, when did they assert this authority? When were they given the charge to, you know, that, hey, this is your brief, you run with this. They are saying, they're talking about more e-scooters. They've said in a release last year, national party speed plans would mean more dead kids. And they have, I mean, they're pretty much all aboard the low carbon and uh, anti-car lobby. Mm. Well, that's where they cross the the boundary for me, where they become all virtuous about everything for you and me. And um, look, no one can deny that walking is good, yep. cycling's good, all that's fantastic for your own health. Keep your body moving is you know, what you got to do. Um, but it's where the boundaries are for this sort of concept. And I just see them getting over, overstepping the mark, really. 
Yeah. And you've seen it. You've seen it when you travel around um, the reduction in carriageway for, for cars versus cyclists or the overbuild of pedestrian crossings, the bulbous curbs, all sorts of things. The economy needs to be kept moving. And mm. these people are the ones who don't. I mean, I guess they realize that, but they know what their agenda is and they push that. They even mm. advertised paid positions last year. One of those uh, I saw was uh, just 10 hours a week, but 40 hours, uh, $40 per hour negotiable. And the job was to monitor social media for mention of pedestrians, walking, transport, healthy, physical activity relevant to New Zealand, posting on social media channels, finding opportunities for media, commenting, interaction, outreach. And these are the people who I said that whenever councils put something out on their Facebook pages that, hey, we are doing this, or we are reimagining the street, or we are putting these traffic comment designs, these are the ones going, yay, well done, councils, even though the rest of the public don't want it. So, you know, disregard such organizations at your own peril. NGOs are big partners in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And as the World Economic Forum said, NGO stands for next government official. You know where your policy is coming from. Oh, exactly. And I've got the um, the, the G and it stands for grifter for me. But anyway, you've got a you've got a the current one will run with your idea, Jaspreet. But yeah, look, this is the problem, no matter where we look, there is people expecting um to use your funds, your cash against yourself and your perhaps effort and value to a society. They want to sort of almost hinder you, let alone use your cash. And so that's the bit that gets me is the, you know, we talk about local authorities. I'll, let's go back to that for a moment. Mm-hmm. I saw a local article this week where the Deputy Mayor of Invercargill, whom I know really well, wrote an article or was quoted in an article saying it was great to have the youth um, of his district getting involved. Oh, and youth, show, council. And yep. youth council, yep. And I've got this view. Unless you've cut a check for a council, you shouldn't have much say in how that council operates. And people will say, oh, that's anti-democratic, Don. No, the people that are demanding more out of local authorities can't be the ones that don't pay anything directly. Unless you cut the check, you don't feel it. So it's easy to ask for more and more and more. And that's where we are now with local authorities, let alone government. But you have to appreciate how well they are organized. They go to ah, councils, they sit in during ah, lobby councillors, they do these submissions, and they make it sound as if the vast majority of ratepayers wants oh. these traffic calming devices, wants councils who at this time have rates completely out of control, rate rises. They want them to put cycle lanes. They want them to spend $7.5 billion on Let's Get Wellington Moving to completely oh. strangle you of your ability to move at will freely in what you thought was your oh. own hood. It's and- uh, ab- absolutely Jasper. It's it's so kind. It's so just. It's, um, it's all the words that uh, former Prime Minister uh, used, Macron used. Trudeau uses, Boris Johnson even used it, Scott John- Scott uh, Morrison even used them. Um, build back better. This is how you build back better. Yep. Doesn't make Absolutely. sense to me. No. But there you go. That, so, look, relatively, um, this is, it's annoying, but it's less annoying than last week's one, the care stuff out of Massey University. That was on steroids in comparison, in my belief. But 
good highlighting one more NGO and hopefully people will look up and wake up and just see what they're funding. So anyway, that's enough of that. Perhaps, perhaps we yep, should move yeah. on and, um, yeah. We'll so have we that. have, uh, our next guest coming on soon and we have Kate Mason, a prolific uh, blogger, Substack author from Australia joining us soon. Kate Mason is also one of the small team behind this endeavor called empowering communities. The website is communityvoiceaustralia.org and their job, which they have taken on, is to make it more evident to the community what plans their local government, their local energy sector and so on have for the area. So we'll have Kate on in a moment. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet Boparai here with my co-host, Don Nicholson. Now, I don't know about you, but these days we hear a lot of jargon that puzzles me, that confuses me, because I've always thought of food as food, agriculture, but we hear a whole lot about food systems, food sovereignty, so on, so forth. So, so much so that New Zealand, we also have this program called Fit for a Better World, the website is www.fitforabetterworld.org.nz, which the government says is a program of work towards 2030, that date, 2030, committed towards meeting greatest challenges faced by the New Zealand food and fiber sector. And delving into some of their uh, documents about what they do, this caught my attention. Food, they're talking of latest innovations in food systems, and they talk about Food as software, food which integrates latest advancements in science and technology to make food production radically easier, safer and faster and disrupt the food industry and traditional production methods. Now, I don't know about you, but that sort of a thing worries me. What are we doing? What is going on? And perhaps this needs to be broken down for the layperson such as me. I thought I'm farming. Dawn is farming. And that's what food systems are. But there is a whole lot here than what meets the eye. And to get into this today, we are very happy to have on board with us Kate Mason. Kate is a blogger. She's got a substack, a content, uh, and I should say a whole lot of content she's created from Australia. And she joins us today. Kate, welcome on to Greenwashed. Uh, thank you, Jez Preet. And hello, Dawn. Hi there. Hey. So tell us a bit more uh, to our listeners, Kate, about yourself. Um, well, I'm a member of Community Voice Australia, which is um, fairly newly formed, and we are advocating for government and public-private partnership transparency and accountability, and that the community has a genuine voice and a genuine place at the table for anything that affects their lives and the environment. So that's where we're placing ourselves. I think the heart of where we're really placing ourselves is that over time, you see more and more groups being picked off and demonised. So for this conversation, we'll talk about the farmers. That's happening very much to farming farming populations around the world, that they're the problem and they're the issue with climate change. And as crises, you know, are created and um, come about, there's a lot of people turning on each other rather than actually identifying the larger global aspect to what's going on. 
Yeah, isn't it? This summer, I have been riveted to my various feeds and news, seeing farmer protests all over Europe. Sri Lanka has already gone down the gurgler a couple of years ago. Protests in India have ramped up. I saw a lot of farmers in Australia during the Reckless Renewables Rally. I believe that happened 6th of Feb, so just earlier this month. Yep. And yeah, farmers are not happy, are they? No, they're not happy because of the renewable, the amount of renewables and the um, compulsory acquisition of their land. So there's a number of reasons that farmers are really unhappy about it. It's the transmission lines as well. And the amount of that's going to go over prime farming land um, without any real community consultation, without any, without the community's voices and the farmers' voices being heard. It's not just the farmers that are fighting back about this. It's really long-term environmentalists as well who are seeing the absolute destruction to the natural environment, as well as community members who just, you know, really care about their actual local towns and, and what's actually going to happen because it destroys communities. It, it absolutely destroys and decimates communities with the renewables coming through. It's very hard to live around the wind turbines mm -hmm. and they can just, they are, you know, moving into compulsory acquisition of farmland. One thing that caught my attention over the last week, Kate, was this uh, uh, post on Facebook from uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts. And I couldn't find the source, but what he'd written was that a recently, uh, now a deleted document from the Australian government stated that 70 Seven zero seventy percent of Australian farmland might have to be sacrificed for these uh, uh, ultimate renewables that are going to save us all, and that was staggering. If this is true, that's staggering. Seventy percent of Australian farmland, but of course, that's been deleted. That's nowhere to be found. Do you, is that the one that's about Victoria? I saw one that somebody sent me, and I think it was from. Um, I think I wouldn't. It, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, and that it was around that eighty percent, seventy to eighty percent of farmland in Victoria. But they were talking about that prior to having the offshore wind turbines. So right. yeah, I had a, a little look at that because I thought that's astounding. What, but it's a huge amount of land that needs to exactly. be exactly the fact that we would even consider something like this when, at the same time, you have the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, and others, UN, WEF, all talking about how. Nearly a billion of the world, you know, the world's population goes hungry. What are we doing to ourselves? And, well, and why? And who is doing this? Yeah. Okay. So that's the question. That's I went and spoke at that renewables rally because I think it's really important to identify, you know, when you see at the protests, as you as you talked about, there's protests all around the world and it's all about the government's um, net zero plans. That's what the farmers are protesting. They're all being pushed off the land or, you know, it's it's very concerning to farming land. But and then you see the the signs, no farmers, no food. But this isn't the reality of what they're planning for our food systems. There is a global, very transparent agenda to transform our food systems into synthetic biology, which is pretty mostly lab created food. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I think it's really important that we understand the bigger picture and not think it's just coming from our governments. There, you know, it, it is the the United Nations and the food, the United Nations has an arm, the Food and Agricultural Organization. Yeah. They signed a partnership in 2020 with um, CropLife to transform our food systems. CropLife is Bayer Monsanto, Syngenta, you know, um, Corteva. It's the big corporations that have the biotech and also have 75% of the world's um, seed stock. Right. Yeah. What could go so, wrong? So, 
Yeah, so yeah, what could go wrong? And you'd wonder, uh, they are obviously adapting to this new future in advance effectively because you'd wonder why they would want to get out of the current business they're in. I mean, it's been pretty successful. It's uh, where they've made their bread and butter and their and their innovations for a century or more. Mm. I mean, even New Zealand had a company called uh, Blackso Smith Klein, um, ended up being one of the biggest companies in the world on on the um, drug markets and things. And um, and you know, now is it? It's all different. All of a sudden, Kate, what's what's changed? You know, we we just don't need all that anymore. No, so they they also do. Um... There's some tricky things in there. So they're, they're hot. if I talk about the food technologies, and I'm not saying I understand them all, they're, they're very complex. It's actually hard to find the actual information on how they do anything. Um, but they're talking, so Australian governments are going into partnership with precision fermentation. Um, so that's that's using, that's using um, it uses microbes, but it tweaks the DNA of the microorganisms to produce a specific molecule that they wouldn't actually make. So you can make animal proteins and enzymes and fats from mm-hmm. this microbe that's been genetically manipulated. And so that's just done in big, you know, big vats, hugely energy intensive. But the government in Queensland has um, signed a partnership with a group called Cauldron, a corporation called Cauldron. And the CSIRO with their venture capital arm, Main Sequence, is also funding them out in Orange in New South Wales. And that is valued at um, one point. So precision fermentation globally is valued at $1.93 billion in 2022 and is poised to reach approximately US dollars 63 billion by 2032. So that's a really big aspect, and that's going to actually create a lot of things. So the CSIRO has a synthetic biology roadmap where they talk about precision fermentation. And basically you modify the microbe's DNA so it can um, create this specific protein or molecule, and that's how it's done. But they don't – It's I, I do need to do more work to actually try to find some information about what that actually is, what that means. And that product is not considered GMO. It is not considered GMO. So, no. listeners, if you've just joined us, uh, Kate is referring to CSIRO. This is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization of the Australian government. I would say your peak scientific body. And uh, we are talking about, for lack of a better term, Frankenstein food here. Yeah, and they, and they say food can now be produced without the use of living things, soil or conventional farming practices. They, you do need farming, you do need some sort of crops because they use sugar or they'll use something to actually grow and, and you know, to create this product. But it will be, it won't be like, so there'll be some crops that are still going, but it won't be the, you know, the main amounts of food that we have now on farming land. It's it's odd because I'm reading a New Zealand website called MPG Food Tech, and it says one significant issue associated with precision fermentation is the unnaturalness of such materials. GMO foods are currently highly controlled in many countries and avoided by many consumers. Um, I I sense there is mass resistance. Uh, yeah, in in reality, there's there's a small market potential at the moment. Yeah. You know, the, the the matter of getting this to a bigger market is going to be done by what means effectively. Is it by coercion around climate policy? Is it uh, by this um, 
repatriation or the biodiversity credit systems or the carbon credit systems or the the closing down of lands from farming uh is that going to make it easier for them is that all part of the big picture kate yeah so it's very much going to be i think they're bottling up and destroying the food supply chain and so I talked to two farmers in my area. We're very lucky to have regenerative farmers and I talked to both of them and it's getting harder and harder. So abattoirs are closing down or they will only take the big guys. They won't actually take in the small, you know, 25-acre farmer. Um, And so you've got, and then the costs are just getting more and more prohibitive. So if you're a small scale, you're needing more and more licences and more and more costs with that and then the transport costs to be able to move, you know, to be able to do what you're doing is getting prohibitive, so it's actually becoming harder to keep on the land. And then I guess you've got the renewables coming through the land and people, you know, if they're right near host farms with wind turbines, it actually destroys your capacity to live in your property and enjoy it. So people will move out. In Australia, I think it was 20, it's either 2021 to 2022, I think that's the years we had 5% drop in agricultural land in one year. Wow. So it's starting to happen. And then you get the big guys coming through. Um, Murdoch's son-in-law came through and is is buying up big properties. Rupert Murdoch, you're saying? Yeah, his son-in-law. Mm-hmm. So you've got the big guys, you know, which which mirrors what's happening in America with Bill Gates. So, you know, when it, as people get knocked out of the land, you get the big corporate entities uh, or the big players coming in and buying that land. And they're not going to necessarily live on that land and care for it and, you know, care for their communities. So you're actually destroying basically communities, and that's what's happening um, around with the renewables as well. Yeah, and and you know part of my ethos uh, nowadays compared to perhaps 10, 15 years ago is to look out for the family farmer, the individual owner operator actually, and it's it is getting harder and harder for them uh, in the face. Uh, just it's all about you know, we always used to talk about scale of enterprise and, you know, I was guilty. I had to expand my scale to survive, uh, but I am still relatively small, uh, a small player. But in the end, the game, you, the pointy end happens no matter your scale and and there's just less owners to to talk to. And and if you're a, if you're a, corp, a government of the world, talking to less farmers is far easier than talking to an organisation like the NFF with, thousands of farmers in there and their purview so look you can understand well i don't like understanding it but i can see the game in town is to have less farmers not more i'd say good luck in india trying to have less farmers jasper it's very, not going to so. go go well is it no it is not i often think what needs to be done by force in india because the size of holdings you know the average holding is less than a hectare two acres mm-hmm. or less uh, so the, you have millions of people depending, hundreds of millions dependent on farming, whereas here you don't need to use force because you have larger land holdings, less people. The pen is mightier than the sword. Just keep legislating, keep legislating, make the rules harder and harder, and the farmers keep trying to comply till they die, virtually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so going back to your cell-cultured meats and um, the vowel product of quail, um, Meat, yeah. uh, cultured okay. meat. Just sorry, going right to that. I see that in uh, 2013, a Dutch laboratory made the first synthetic meat. And then there was synthetic chicken in 2021 uh, into Singapore. 
what gives you any sort of feeling that this is going to be as expansive? Because it doesn't look like it's really taken off yet. Now, I know that evolution does take time and markets do have that sort of slow growth before they they do what's called the, you know, they get up the bell curve. You're saying, perhaps, well, the, you're not saying, it's in, it's in writing, that by 2032, we're going to be $60 billion. It appears to, in my reading, that's a long bow to be drawn just yet. Look, that's the, just the precision fermentation. I actually think that one's going to be really strong. Oh, sorry. Um, so the lab cultured cell quail is different. That's lab, so, lab meat. Sorry, so I got that the, wrong. Okay. No, yes, so there's a couple of angles to yeah. this. So the lab meat, if I just talk about the vow, the vow food is making the first lab um, cell, lab cultured cell quail, and that's just going through. So New Zealand and Australia have the same food standards body, the food yeah. standards Australia-New Zealand body. So they're, they are in the process of amending the food code to allow, at the moment, at the moment, what it is, you're not allowed to uh, allow a new novel food in. So something that doesn't have a history or I can't quite remember the whole parameter. So they have to change the code to allow this this lab this lab meat in. So that is in process. We put a big, the public submissions close, I think early February. They've got another round where they're going to open it up for public submissions. So we had a really good look at, at the company and we, and also, you know, this lab meat and what's the processes. Um I'm, I'm, I'm similar to you, Don. It use, it's incredibly expensive and it uses an enormous amount of energy. It's highly toxic as well. So I'm not sure. Like sometimes I wonder are they intentionally, but I do think the precision fermentation seems to be really taking off where you can get these alternative proteins. So the lab-cultured quail, um, yeah, I guess I can, I can talk more broadly about it, but specifically to ask your question, I'm not 100% sure now, but I, I do feel like the normal food processes and markets and the food chains are being broken. So at the same time, they are talking a lot about this lab meat's going to come in and it's going to transform the food system. I'm not 100% sure it is either. So the lab quail that they're putting through at the moment is just going to be very specialised. Val Food is partnering with some chefs and they just want to make it this sort of novel food in restaurants, but they also want to put it into pastries and stuff like that. So, but in terms of being concerned about this lab, I think what needs to be on the public radar about it is that they had, so we're asked as a public to put in submissions about to the FSANZ. They want to hear what we've got to say. When you go and look at the proposal, and, and they're saying that they've got no problems with the FSANZ saying, we have no problems with this, we think it's going to be fine. If you go in and look at actually what VOW has put in, we can't see about, the public cannot see about 30 different documents outlining, you know, how what outlining their tests, what their results were, um, you know, like the processes involved in this lab meet. There's 30 different aspects that we're not allowed to see because it comes under commercial, confidential commercial information. So the public is sort of expected to eat this or consume this without knowing anything about the processes, which is utterly concerning. And they also dumb it down. So when they're talking about mm. the quail, they do literature searches. So Val does literature searches to say, but they, then they'll actually talk about, so they say it's a novel food, but then they'll go, we've done a literature search on quail and there are no issues. They're not doing literature search on cell quail. So they're not the same things, but they, they're not the same they, do quail. That bait, they do that bait and switch thing where it's like there's no issues with quail, so there's no issues with lab quail. 
you know, so, but they're not the same thing at all. Like the, to actually get a cell and to be able to grow it into some product that resembles some form of meat um, takes is enormously intensive and has enormous amounts of processes in there. And then they just put synthetic vitamins and minerals into the lab quail and compare it to the real quail. So there's the, that's the way they do it. And it, so it's very dumbed down to the public and it's actually incredibly, there's, it's just such a big arena to try and get your head around. But the WHO does have a food safety aspects of cell-based food where they do detail a whole bunch of things that it goes through, like for about 50 or 60 pages um, compared to what VAR food does. So, so in answering your question as to... Um, there's very big players behind Val Food. So you've got Blackbird and they are a venture capital firm. So they put money. You've also got a Saudi Arabian oil company in there as well, get funding Val Food. But you've got, so Blackbird, if I just stick to Blackbird because it's more relevant to Australia, that is, there are two men that started up Blackbird and um, one of them is the ex-CEO of CSIRO. Oh, wow. So that's your peak Australian scientific body. Yeah, and he was in there. I don't know what year he started. Maybe I'll just say this, like 200, uh, two, two, 2016 to 2023. Mm -hmm. He was the CEO. He changed when he was there. There were many scientists that were fired, and he made the, he made the frame that we're no longer going to look at climate change modelling. We're going to look at climate change mitigation. So climate change mitigation is things such as this sort of food. This is they they say that we need these these synthetic foods because of climate. To feed the world, it's SDG number two, feed the world, zero hunger from the United Nations and it's climate action SDG 13. They're the main two that's quoted as to why we need to create this synthetic food market for the world. It's for the world. So yeah, so you've got him in there as Blackbird, and then you have Black uh, CSIRO started up their own venture capital firm called Main Sequence. And the other co-owner or co-founder of Blackbird is the partner in with CSIRO for their venture capital firm. Oh, my God. So you've got CSIRO completely implanted. Then their their venture capital firm funds synthetic food, you know, startups. So they're, they're, they're very invested. You've got really big players in there invested in this lab meat. So I think that's also important for people to understand. Wow. Yeah, the legislation for convenience, eh? All around this, Jasper, we often talk about legislative privilege. It looks like uh, there's lots of people milking the legislation that's, you know, we talked about net zero or, or climate policy. And yeah, look, it's, uh, well, it's there for the taking. It's yeah. there for the taking. And you can see that uh, they'll seduce as much government funding as they possibly can and uh, spit spit the government shareholding out some other way and pocket it all for themselves. It's how it works, isn't it? Yeah. You follow the signs, you get to the money. Listeners, we will be back in a moment. Don and I, time to take a short break. We'll be back with Kate Mason and discuss more about the future of that appetizing Frankenstein food that's awaiting us all. Thank you for joining Don and me this morning. 2057 is our number or email us at inbox at the rate reality check touch radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. 
We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed. And if you've just joined us this morning, we are speaking with Kate Mason. She's a prolific blogger from Australia. And we are talking about uh, Frankenstein food or cultured food, lab meats and so on. Kate's substack, in case you've not come across this, is kate739.substack.com or just look up Kate Mason Australia on Substack. And the byline, Kate, I think on your Substack is, and I don't have it in front of me, is decoding for uh, the fourth industrial revolution, 4IR. Yeah, narratives. 4IR narratives, which is the fourth industrial revolution is in front of us. Synthetic biology or lab meets, or as I say, the wrecking of conventional agriculture and the wrecking of our health is ahead of us. But just before we went for a break, we were spoke we were speaking about lab lab made quail. Kate has done three substacks on this recently, and they're well worth a read. Mind you, it, they are not light. She goes into the funding and she follows the money trail of why and how this is happening. Who are the big players? But one thing I want to talk about here right now, because they are pushing this sort of stuff, Kate, for planetary health. But what does it mean for our health? And this paragraph from your substack caught my attention. The big honking asterisk is that normal meat cells don't just keep dividing forever. To get cell cultures to grow at rates big enough to power a business, several companies are quietly using what is called immortalized cells, something most people have never eaten intentionally. Immortalized cells, you say, are a staple of medical research, but they are technically precancerous and in some cases fully cancerous. Mm. Wow. I know, it's extraordinary. So, yes, so you get a cell and then you have to make that cell multiply itself um, using fetal bovine serum or other. So they, they, this Val Food says they don't use fetal bovine serum. Um, they use some other medium to keep growing the cells. So our cells don't naturally just keep, like that is a cancerous cell where a cell just complete, you know, keeps developing. Yeah. And doesn't stop. So I don't know how Vow Food are doing that because, as I said before, there's 30 documents that we're not allowed to see. So they're not going to tell you the process whereby they do that because that's their, you know, that's confidential commercial information. So how do they do that? But it is a precancerous cell state. There's nothing that can be said about that. That is 100% what it is. And then if you've got cells dividing indefinitely, they can come up with different gene patterns. Um, so, yeah, you, you're ending up with something who knows what it is. Now, the, the big massive thing that we actually, because we put a submission in around this, is we want we want forensic audit. It's not okay that we can't see which company gives the cell, you know, originally, um, mm. you know, the cell line and creates that cell line. It's not okay that we don't know any of the processes. It's not all right that we don't know who in FSANZ is saying yes to this being put into our food market. If people are going to, and there's no testing, there's no testing to this. So when they say, as I said before, when they actually go a literature search for safety, they're just comparing it to actual real quail. That is their literature search. It's it, So there's no actual studies done on what this does to the human body or what happens how, how what's the health implications of this so they need to be a hundred percent responsible and transparent for who is actually responsible and and that it, people can be sued for this well so if they get it wrong 
uh, who is indemnified, uh, you know, if they got an indemnity, does it go back on the government of the or you know the authority within government that is um, going to be liable if something is wrong? It sounds a little bit like the indemnity given by our governments on mRNA vaccines. Safe and effective. Yes, and yeah, and this is slightly different, but um, similar. Mm. In, in I'm going on to a slightly different topic at the moment. Crop life is there's a bill going through in America to indemnify um, to so that Bayer Monsanto crop life companies cannot be sued. So you've got crop life partnering with the United Nations FAO, um, and then they're at the moment angling to get a bill through, an act through in America so they cannot be sued because Bayer Monsanto is being sued all over the world at the moment because of glyphosate and cancer risks and cancer. So, yes, there's a bigger picture to this no transparency, no accountability picture that we're seeing forming around our food systems. So so just on that, you know, the sort of policeman in me says, um, gee, that sounds like a buy-off. Uh, that sounds like uh, the big corps are saying uh, we'll, we'll capitulate to government's uh, wishes of the day, uh, provided you take the heat off us on uh, perhaps the glyphosate angle. Yeah. Anything, anything, because they 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 are going to transform. So crop life is going to transform our food systems. So what does that mean if they cannot be sued in any way, shape, or form? Well, so the justification for this application to Food Safety Authority Australia and New Zealand was given by Wow V O W. This is an Australian-based company. I think a Sydney-based company. It said that the United Nations has stated that human population will grow to nine point seven billion dollars. Cultured meat can help support the growing demand for protein, make the food industry more resilient. There's a $25 billion opportunity for uh, cultured meat industry globally, and Australia and New Zealand are going to seize the moment. And yet, when you asked, the requests for the following were all denied. Mycoplasma reports, confidential information, sterility report, confidential, retrovirus, confidential, bacteria reports, confidential, Heavy metal reports, confidential, anti, I could go on and on. And they are putting this in our food systems. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. With no transparency and with, no accountability. With no transparency. What is WOW Systems today? I mean, they are pretty confident, aren't they, that all of this is going to be approved? They are now gunning for a second factory? Second Yes, they unit? are. They're bringing up a second factory. Um I'm just having to remember now. But when I listened to Alex, so there's two co-founders of Vow Foods, but um, I think his name's Alex is one of them. Mm. He, and he, this is basically a quote, I'm paraphrasing. He talked about farming and some he was talking. So there's different, these food futurists, as they can also be called, they just say in the future, it's we're not talking about farmers making food. We're talking about tech companies making food. So that is it in a nutshell. But he, this Alex guy was talking about, someone said to him in an interview, how are farmers going to go with this transformation of our food systems where it becomes created in labs? He said just the same way that people still, that people used to ride horses because, you know, they needed it for transport and now they're just a luxury item that people can just ride for luxury, the wealthy can ride for luxury Farming, conventional farming, will will go the same way. So there'll be some ethical farms potentially left, but they will only be for the wealthy who want to hark back to the bygone days. They will not be the mainstream food. 
So in a nutshell, he's basically saying this young guy who's getting very heavily funded by oil companies and CSIRO ex-employees, um, he's talking about this regenerative farming and farming that's will be for the elitists, not for us, not for the people. Yeah. And, and to me that is so, that just, I cannot believe anyone could listen to that and not want to just say this is this is such a horrendous model. But in his mind, and it's probably quite right in his own mind, he thinks, I think he probably genuinely thinks, he is saving the climate and bringing in zero hunger for the world under the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's what they do, these big corporates and everything. So Bill Gates at COP27, I think it was, was saying, you know, here we are, we've got all these big tech firms and big corporations. We've got these young global change makers coming in. We're going to back them and partner with them. And if you look at Blackbird, which I talked to you about before, who's funding Val, you'll just see a whole bunch of 30 to 40-year-olds, you know, kind of like really cool guys and, and women, young men and young women. They say things like on their, their website, we don't wear, we, we wear T-shirts. You know, they have these little pithy, you know, like, we're so cool, we just wear T-shirts, we're like, really, you know, one of you guys. You have to search really hard to find that the two co-founders of Val, uh, these older two men who have, you know, worked with the military, have, you know, these very different backgrounds to the persona that's put out through the website, which is, you know, very much catered to the young people and trying to get the young people in. And that's what they're doing. There's young people at the front and then there's this, the massive corps at the back, massive. the corporate entities. Yeah. So, so I looked up while you were chatting. So it was George Pepow. Yeah. Oh, George. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, him and Tim Noaksmith, the CCO. Yeah, George is it. the one that you hear talking. Um, the other guy's much quieter. Yeah. And uh, their funder, Blackbird, the venture capitalist firm, it says that WOW is building the Nestle or Heinz of cellular agriculture. We love the scrappiness of the team at the hustle, nearly nearly free lab space at King's School and, yeah, successfully wooed a University of Melbourne stem cell researcher to join their team, so on and so forth. And, yeah, these guys actually think they're doing good. But one has to go back to the root of all of this. We have similar noises here. We have agri-tech in New Zealand pushing this. We are talking of software as food, and I don't even know what that means. Word salads here. All of this, I think, and you've explained it in your blog, we go back to the same old players, World Economic Forum, United Nations, and the World Economics uh, Forum's white paper, Transformation of Food Systems. Yes. They've all seized on an opportunity, a bandwagon, hitched their star to it, and that's it. Yeah, and it's all under the public-private partnership model, um, so, you know, we are the people who pay for it. So, you know, so it's a similar like CSIRO is funding these, you know, through their venture capital firm, they'd be using government, you know, they'd be using taxpayers' money to do that. So we're always, so yeah, the World Economic Forum and the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, have a paper transforming um, food systems. So, and then in that it goes into just that it needs to be lab meat and they talk about breast, they talk about sort of lab breast milk um, so all the examples they give of, you know, of what what sh what needs to come is is lab created food. Nothing is secret anymore. No. Secret breast milk. 
No, no. And so then they do, they've got a 100 million farmers. So they've created an initiative. Oh, sorry, one, yeah, 100 million mm-hmm. farmers. And it's basically how global corporations can partner with government and invest in synthetic biology and biotech initiatives. So there are groups that are are screaming out. Like Africa, I haven't looked so much at India, but I know India is, you know, part of the Green Revolution as well. So you've got Rockefeller and you've got Gates and you've got Bayer Monsanto and Syngenta and all of these guys come together in these big green revolutions and they've gone in and created massive monoculture, pesticide-laden, synthetic um, GMO seeds. And they went, and I've looked more at Africa, and so they've gone into there and they have, they, you know, pay for, they put people in certain places and they pay for studies and they work with the government. And and basically the, the small farmers in Africa have been screaming out. I think it was like 40 million farmers came together to say, get out of our country, you're destroying us. And yet you'll still see the United Nations and everyone else virtue signalling about the Green Revolution being wonderful. But now, see, they've got, they've got crispered seeds so they can genetically edit and scissors, like it's called a genetic scissors. So they're bringing in these climate-resilient or climate-smart seeds that don't need pesticides and use less water. And in and I do not know the technology yet as to how they make them pesticide-resistant, but I think it's very much worth having a look at. So what they're going to do, I think, so in Africa already they're starting to hone in on them to make the African countries have to use those climate-safe seeds. So you're no longer able to use, you know, seeds you can share and they're not patented. So we're looking at a system where I think 100% of our food systems over time are going to be patented and controlled by a very, very very small amount of people at the top and you've got all the actors within there and it will all be under climate change and planetary health. So even Rockefeller has the planetary health. that It's a way of combining the climate change agenda, food systems, land use, um, health, you know, all the five, you know, all the big things about just being a human being on this planet, they want to combine it into this planetary and, and the economy combine it into this planetary health model and absolutely have 100% control over it. I did want to also mention, because I don't think it's on many people's radar, in September our leaders are coming together at the United Nations Summit for the Future and they are going to sign a pact. And that pact is going to be that they want to speed up and, and put more money into the UN SDG goals and bring more young people into the fray. So that's that sort of young people coming in and becoming young change leaders um, and, and a number of other things that's concerning. So I, it, it, and it's basically going to be a global governance system where every single aspect of our lives are going to be governed through the United Nations down through our government. And, and the United Nations, of course, has got a partnership with the World Economic Forum, the 1,000 largest corporates in the world. So you're looking at corporate control through the United yeah. Nations. It's very clear. It is very clear. Yes. But, of course, we've got most of our politicians um, would just say we're crazy. Uh, <laughs> that argument's crazy, uh, Kate and Jaspreet. Uh, we hear it. Uh, they're very timid around this sort of rhetoric. They don't like it. It pushes, it makes them feel very, very uncomfortable. And yet they're the ones allowing people from our own country, our representatives, to go to the United Nations and join in these forums and make make resolutions and uh and and some support the text that comes out of these um these forums it's interesting to me as well and just 
changing a wee bit that the likes of Tyson Meats and Cargill and other big players are involving themselves in cell uh, cultured meats in California through Epic or through Upside Foods or in Israel is another company. Yes, let me see if I can find it. No, I just can't find it instantly. There is these other players, uh, uh, companies in the Northern Hemisphere are really working in this space. Um, but it amuses me uh, how meat, red meat companies are involved in it as well, yep. real meat companies. And you wonder if it's just virtue signaling and time wasting to see it off, or is it um, is it real? I'm just putting a, being a fly in the ointment here because I think I know the answer, but um, you'd wonder why they would allow, the boards of directors of those companies would allow this to even get traction within their businesses. Yeah, the whole model's strange, isn't it? And yes. what what is it really going to look like? Um, yeah, it's a question to, I think we've got to keep our eye on this a lot. The other thing that, I mean, the other aspect to all of this, and it's also with the climate change, um, moving people, what's happening in, um, sorry, what's that town, that region in New Zealand? It's, that's already getting the climate change modelling that people, the managed retreat area. So, oh, and uh, the Capity Coast, maybe? Capity Coast, yes, yeah, Capity Coast. Yeah. So that's also happening in Australia, but um, where they're, they're talking, starting to talk about, it's all in our government documents, so it won't be too long. But the other thing that can happen when you go off these farms and, and corporates buy it um, or, you know, it get, there's, it's the natural asset corporation. So that's also through yeah. this climate change agenda, which is basically where corporates yeah. can get their hands on. Um, and this is also funded by Rockefeller. Rockefeller is through everything, the well-being, economy, every aspect of what's happening. He has he's, They're funding it. But the natural asset corporations are basically where they – Put ecosystems, eco, so the nature is is commodified into an ecosystem service. So this much nature gives this much fresh air, mm. etc. And so then they tried to at the end of last year start trading in this in the ecosystem services under natural asset corporations and put it on the the SEC. Um, but it was knocked back for now. But it will come back because if you look at any government language, it's really about ecosystem services. So as people are moved off the land or farmers are moved off the land, they're not going to need potentially as much land for the agriculture if they actually can get all this lab stuff created for us to eat in our smart cities. If the smart cities is also part of this agenda. This is the food that they're talking about for our smart cities. So with the nature that's left or they'll rewild, but they will have complete ownership over this, this land. So they're angling to be able to get the natural, the state forests, the Indigenous estate in Australia, 72% of Australia is going to potentially be under Aboriginal organisational claims by 2030. So huge amounts of land are going to get, you know, um, going to get, what would you call it, just locked up. And, and then, and then mm -hmm. they're going to be traded on the stock market. And then those corporations, if this goes through, this model, and I think it will, it definitely will, you know, at some point, um, they those corporates that own the shares in this land actually can say what happens on the land. So they have a level of ownership and they can do that with farming land as well if a farmer signs up to it. I listen to all of this and all I'm thinking right now in my head is, 
what an exciting time to be alive <laughs> then the next decade is going to be absolutely amazing it's Just, it's crazy abs- absolutely crazy what's surreal what we are living through but and, but if you yeah. if you're full of self interest and full of yet yeah, let's use the legislation let's use the privilege you'll go for that like um like a rabid dog, you'll be after that cash and you can't blame, for instance, let's say a Aboriginal tribe saying, let's monet- let's have someone monetize our um, reservation. Uh, it's a bit like the, the nonsense carbon trading system. We're going to, we're going to monetize natural assets like air and water. Yeah. Uh, it's just nonsense. But there will be people who will have their hand out and saying, this is all too tough. We will, we just want this to come our way. And it's short term thinking. It's not. Mm. It's it's very selfish thinking. No, but, but. seriously, I mean, I, I look at the previous decades and all other things. I've lived through, lived a very boring life. The next few years are going to be very, very exciting. Mm. It's funny you should mention Rockefellers and that they are everywhere. They are literally everywhere. Many of the officials right now, the top ones in the UN, have be, have come through the schools. One particular one, since you mentioned Africa, I can just rattle off is Agnes Kalibata. This woman was the UN Food Envoy for the UN Food Summit in 2021 picked up from a Rwandan refugee camp. And then we had our New Zealand mainstream media do an article about her in 2021. Agnes Kalibata's uh, amazing, you know, road to the current place. And they said in Uganda, university education for, you know, was hard to get for someone in her place. And said, I did a master's paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation. And when I finished my master's, they asked me if I wanted to do a PhD. And again, I said, why not? And this woman was the agriculture minister of Rwanda. Rwanda has an average life expectancy, just over 60. A third of their children, a third under five, are malnutrition. This is a woman, you know, where agriculture ministers like Australia and New Zealand, they go and pay homage to her, or they did when she was the UN Food Envoy, and all paid through by the Rockefellers and our ministers, all those who go to these, they have absolutely no qualms. But yet, here it is, right in your face, a woman who was responsible, at least in some part during her term, in destroying Rwandan agriculture, is telling the world leading countries on how to do better agriculture. Yes. God, the hypocrisy. And, and Rockefeller is very much um, behind the climate agenda, has been for a very long time. For a very long crafting time. Crafting the climate agenda. So, yes, Rockefeller is really important to keep an eye, well, to understand. So this is like, this is not on food, but this is the way they're wrapping everything around. They also have the Wellbeing Alliance, which is Rockefeller funded. So it's where you you change the economy. So it's based on wellbeing metrics mm-hmm. and and that's coming into, that's come into Australia. Um, and so then they've got the little hubs in all the countries and whatever else. Now, I think this is potentially linked into social impact bonds, which I've been looking at, which Treasurer Chalmers is backing big time from the start of last year, which is basically where corporates actually invest in social welfare programs and then get a financial return from people's suffering and the government and the people pay. So rather than community centres getting money from the government, they run programs specific to the people oh. that they work with, we actually now have an investment, an investment um, model where people and and so those same corporates entities like Black Blacks, uh, no, not Black, no, not Blackbird. What's the other one? Not Blackstone. Um, Blackrock. Blackrock. Blackrock is on, and so is Blackbird. They're on the Treasurer Chalmers Investment Roundtable. 
So you've got these guys in there. So if we just even think about what happened during COVID and how there's been an enormous transfer of wealth through COVID and the policies and people have become much more vulnerable and you can see people are starting to really slide out of being able to have home ownership and everything else. So you've got this corporate model where there's corporates in there and they, they would have the power. They would have the power versus the government, you know, so they're, they're in their directing policies. Then they're actually also making money off the effects of the policies. When people get broken, they come in according to how they want to fix those people and they make profit returns. Yeah. And we, we are seeing that misery now here. To, just this uh, weekend gone, we had uh, the Kluta area not far from Don and me that Kluta ratepayers can expect compounded rates increase of 49% to 80% over the next three years. Mm. Can you imagine? Yeah. Scandal. Yeah. How disgraceful is that? But yet that's that's what ratepayers are going to face. 49 and the, and the insurance is going up. Like So that's what I saw on the World Economic Forum website, and it was Australian companies, uh, climb, I can't remember their name, but they put out a paper saying one in 25 homes uninsurable by 2030 yep. in, in yep. Australia. That's uninsurable. Then there's just that people can't afford it. You know, there's a whole other cohort. Yeah, it's, it's skyrocketing. Ours went up, and we asked why, and they said climate change modelling. We asked, well, what's your climate change modelling? Like a month ago, we haven't heard from them. So, you know, like people, it, I, I guess what I really want to see people doing is actually challenging. Yeah. Don't just take that. Actually ask, what's your climate change modelling? And and start to really have a look at how we're being charged too much. Same with smart meters. I've got somebody who I saw just put a post up and they put their own little meter on. So they've got the smart meter going, clocking off on the electricity usage, and then they put their own one on. Their own one says a much less amount of electricity being used than the smart meters. We, we're going to have to start challenging things. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I'd just say on that, and I'm not defending that, uh, by the way, um, Kate, but having been involved in the electricity sector, in New Zealand at least, that is audited significantly um, uh, there's um, a sample of uh, meters taken out every year and audited at least in the old meters if it, you know I, I have to say um, maybe in the new smart meters we trust them a lot more so good you put the put that on my radar um, it's interestingly though interesting though that in uh, the last five years we've had prime ministers of both countries and the United States and France and Canada all talk with the same flaky language when they when they become uh, leader. It is we're going to have a just transition. We're going to have well-being budgets, and we're going to build back better. Exactly, and, Don. And then how can they say that people who they if you look up any government policy that's coming into Australia, you will find the United Nations um, policy behind it. So it's yeah. it's not it's it's transparent. They are definitely just taking policies that are crafted by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and putting them into place in our governments. Have a look, and, and Jasper will back that up, so I'm going to beat her to it. Um, you know, every uh, everything I read these days talks about being sort of in sync with the United Nations SDGs, and sometimes they even do use the WEF stuff. So for, for our politicians who deny that that's in the, uh, in the public arena, um, I think they are frightened. Yeah, they're, they're either donkey deep in it, or they're frightened of being caught out with uh, their inaction to stop it. And and my view is, the protection of national sovereignty is fundamental, mm. and we just don't seem to have that ethos uh, strong enough in our in our governance structures in this country, and I think in yours as well. 
No, definitely not. Definitely not. It's only a couple of politicians speaking like that. Yes, and and this all leads into so the climate change narrative about having to you know be manage retreat and everything else and where people are going to be put into which will be resilient resilient cities and whatever else which is smart cities. There's just one prime example for people that want to seek. So the food connects up to all of this, and so there's one prime prime can. Example, it's kind of like a big example. It's not necessarily what's going to happen in Australia and New Zealand, but it's the NEOM, NEOM um, smart city in Saudi Arabia that's that's being built. And that is, but this Ooh. is the pretty much the model. So they started off, it's they started off with it's going to was going to be the line, which was 170 kilometers long and 200 meters wide. And that's been changed somewhat, but basically it wants to put, I, I don't know the exact amount of land now it is, but it's a car-free city and it's large enough to house 9 million residents within walkable communities within all ba- with all basic services within a five-minute walking distance. So this is the sort of model that they've got. And then you can, and then they call that sustainable because 95% of the land and sea will be protected. So people won't be on 95% of this area yeah, well, land, and that's why it's sustainable. That's why it's sustainable. And then they have a food system. So if anyone wants to see the model, it's a good model to look at. Their food system is Topium, T-O-P-I-A-N, and they are re- redefining food production, distribution and consumption. Um, so it'll be climate-proof agriculture, regenerative agriculture, no- novel foods, which is this lab foods, personalised nutrition, which I think is, I need to understand more about that, but it's all about genetically altering everything, sustainable food supply and ESG. So pretty much you've got your, um, you know, your, your locked in city, your locked in place that people just live packed and stacked. 95% of the land is free or would have a lot of renewable energy over it, I imagine. And then you have your food in some sort of laboratory in some sort of precinct area that gets fed into the smart cities. Good Lord. Yep. It's uh, all my sci- sci-fi stuff. But, hey, look, <laughs> I, I, I'm not scared of the evolution of ideas. I mean, I haven't, you know, I'm well through my life. But um, the evolution of ideas is a, is how we got here effectively. We wouldn't be having this this call in, um, if it wasn't for ideas. So, you know, I, I read a book years ago called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. He's a British peer. And, it just says it all for me. It's really simple. It is about ideas and the good bits hang around, the bad bits don't. Um, hopefully common sense prevails, Kate. It's all it's all up to us, though, to put that pressure back on our governors. And currently they're getting away scot-free. Jasper Eats Council, um, I look at them and I think they're in a daze. Mm. There's only one person out of 12. And I, yeah, I'm looking at her right now and she's the only one that's sort of Eyes wide open. The rest are just living in a dreamland. I don't think they know what's going on. I think we know more than they know. Yeah, I think most people come to council with very genuinely, you know, from the right place. It is, as Dawn, you've said often in your, you know, another life, just being micromanaged, micromanaged by people around you and sort of being led into a direction. But hey, as I said, there's some very exciting times ahead. Kate, what's next for you at Community Voices Australia? Uh, Well, I think, yeah, we're still going to really look into this food. I want to be putting in submissions as much as possible um, and educating people. So in the Central Coast where I am, we are going to be an agri-tech. We're we're being transformed into um, a megacity. 
a global megacity. So we have Amazon moving in on us and, you know, different things happening there. And we are going to be a precinct for agri-food. So this is partly why I want to get my head around this because I, I really, we, ha- we were the food hub, we were the food bowl for Sydney, the Central Coast, and we have wonderful, wonderful small-scale farmers here. So I am 100% committed to raising awareness as to what actually is in the works um, through the University of Newcastle, um, which is a United Nations, has the United Nations arm in it, and they're moving, they've got a food lab in our Central Coast and moving more into the Central Coast. So there's a whole bunch there I want to stay really focused on and just really um, also the climate change. I went to a council meeting the other day, which was a community consultation regarding the, I don't know what it was called, the sea, the water strategy for the Central Coast. Managed retreat was on the, managed retreat was up there, but people don't even know what that means. So I, I find it, you know, reprehensible that this is all happening. I guess the main thing I've been for the last four years is at least be honest about what you're doing, you know, at least from the top, tell people what you're doing. Stop. The vast majority of people have no idea what's what's in the works and what's even in the government documents. And that really, and then they they have the goal to actually say, we care about the community and we want to hear your voices. Ooh, and yeah, it's yeah. like, it, it really, that hypocrisy is what's, don't virtue signal why you're doing it to us. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I think that's what really gets me. Yeah, Absolutely. we're from the government and we're here to help. We know uh, that's a saying that was well used um, decades ago. Um, it's as true today. Trust that at your peril. Yes. Anyway. 100%. So, Kate, we'll have to wrap up now, but thank you so much for joining us. You were listening to Kate Mason. You can find her at Substack. Just look up her name and a blog goes by the byline Deconstructing 4IR, so the Fourth Industrial Revolution narratives. And we talked about quite a lot today, the World Economic Forum, UN, food systems, and of course, lab food or Frankenstein food. If you're just only logging on, you might like to catch a replay tonight between 7 to 10 or Saturday mornings. Greenwash is on again from 7 to 10 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Kate. No doubt we'll be in touch in the future. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. And hope you enjoyed that chat with Kate Mason. And uh, uh, it's not for me, but maybe lab-based quail might be on your menu soon sometime, Don? Well, I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, To be quite blunt about it, I don't think so. And... You know, that was a serious discussion, really. It's um, it's big ticket uh, for us, um, New Zealand. Yeah, what are people trying to do to us? Uh, I've got no problem about the evolution of ideas. And um, if people gravitate to something that they can't call meat, because it, it just can't be called meat, if they want to call it that sort of artificial protein, mm. well, fill your boots. Totally. But it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's not me either. But we don't know what our grandkids are going to do. So, look, um, let's not try and predict how this will um, develop in society. I just do know that um, it does seem a little odd that the food standards Australia, New Zealand seems to want to be a bit of a closed book on this. I know. I know. Mm. Well, that was the Greenwash show for the week. But before I go, here is a shout out to some of the new shows, done that have caught our attention. 
Yeah, well, look, I, I like uh, Dewey DeBoer and the dialogue. Uh, he has fantastic guests, uh, really clear thinking and uh, clear presentations. And Very of course, topical issues, migration top, and other yep. issues that he's been talking about. Yeah, he's had some fantastic guests, so go back and replay those. And uh, I think we should give a shout-out to Tobias Tahi on um, Mondays uh, and Thursdays at 1pm. He truth speaker. He puts a lot of effort into that. And, um, you know, it's it's intense and it's deep. But um, if you you want a bit, bit of a chilling out mode time, go with Tobias. Yep, music with the side of freedom and truth. Mm. That is Tobias. And I, I must say, I have grown to really love his music. There is always a deeper message and his own personal monologues in between. Hard hitting. Tobias lays it out as it is. And before we go, here is another call out for anyone who still wants to. You, we keep getting messages. How can you help? What can you do? Well, you can do one simple thing. Join our Foundation Club. The Foundation Club is, is an endeavor that gives you access to some members-only content, a special discount of 20% on the RCA merch. This includes bags tote bags, t-shirts, sweatshirts, beanies, everything. And what I like best of all, RCR Bytes, a curated news digest delivered to your email every day. No fluff, just the mm. important stuff. You want to go further, click through those headlines. If not, a quick uh, cursory look is enough to keep you abreast of stuff that really matters as opposed to mainstream media. That'll give you fluff and not the real deal. So, yep. Well spoken, Jasper. I love RCI Bites. It's my morning wake up. Uh, it's almost before I have a coffee. That's that's what I got to have. So, get onto the RCI Bites, and um, that's just about us for this week, isn't it? Um, but we'll go out with who? Oh, I will not. Who? My I, favorites. I'll, yeah, One of my your favorites. favorites. Well, Five you introduce. Times August. You introduce. Five times August, and there's the song. I will not be leaving quietly. And God knows this. My kids now know the lyrics to the song. There's many a time that I've gone on this long road from here to town between the VFF protests and pop-ups and so on, playing this along the way. So yeah, wherever you are. Apt. It's quite it apt for you. It's quite apt. <laughs> so wherever you are, whatever you're doing, we hope you have a great day and week. If you've not had a chance to listen to the full show this morning, you might be busy working or have something else to do. Catch us on a replay tonight between 7 to 10 p.m. on yet again on Saturday mornings between 7 to 10 a.m. This is the Greenwash team, Josh and Don signing off. Goodbye.